The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. How you doing tonight? Welcome, 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 welcome. Should be a fun little stream tonight. Uh, we're going to do some wild stuff we've never done before. Um, should be an interesting, interesting little experiment here. We'll see how it goes, right? We're always trying out new things here. This is a wild, wild bunch of people. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to try something new. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Uh, if you can tweet this out, uh, if you can put this on your Facebook or your Instagram or post it in Facebook groups, we're going to have some fun tonight. It's going to be a little bit of an experiment, yet another experimental live stream. We're going to have fun. We're going to get to know our community here. So uh, should be fun. American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. We know that racism is just, just a byproduct of capitalism. Everything we are is everything we put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. All right, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad that you're here. So what I think we're going to do tonight, uh, I've never done this before, but I noticed that Haas did this on his stream and Ben Rubenstein uh, just suggested that I do this and some other people are excited about this. So right now on my Twitter, I am going to open a Twitter space. I'm just calling it Caleb Moppin's live stream. And that's a way we can bring guests on. It's not the same as bringing them on the stream yard. Uh, we're just going to do it that way. So I'm starting right now. Um, allow mic access. Never done this before. This is literally the first time I've ever done this. And here we are. I am, I am now on a Twitter space. So I am on Twitter space. My mic is off. My mic is on and I'm talking on Twitter space. Is that how it works? I'm on Twitter space. So I share this with a tweet. Join me in my space. Experimental. Experimental. And if you want to, uh, want to come on, I just put this on my space and then I tweet it out. And wow, look, all these people are now in it. So I'm trying to figure out how does this work? Now, if I want to let you talk, do I have to click on you? I've already got like four people who are on here. Now, how does this work? How does this work? Um, if, I, if I want people to talk, do I click on them? I'm, I'm on my phone. This is how it's working. I've never done this before. I've never done this before, folks. It's pretty wild, pretty wild. Um, so I guess um, I, I'm going to try to let somebody talk. I'm going to let lower... Uh, oh no, that's not how it works. So, um, how do I, how do I let people talk? This is interesting. I haven't done this before. So, um, do I click on them to let them talk or like, what do I do? What am I missing here? I feel like I'm missing something. All right. I've never, you have to keep in mind. I've never done this before. Oh, we got a request. Oh, the person has to request to speak. And so if they request to speak, okay, that's how it works. Oh, 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 no, no. 
So we got one request to speak. And so then I click that. Hello. Can you hear me? It says lower and deeper can now speak. Hello. Lower and deeper. Can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. What's on your mind tonight? Lower and deeper. Too much. Just figured I'd help out. I think the person has to request to speak. I see. At that point, you can choose choose on pick on them. So I, that's all I wanted to say for the moment. Okay. Back to being a listener. All right. Very cool. Thank you, thank you so much, Caleb, for all you do, and uh, I'm going to go back to listening. Okay. Well, very good. Yeah. This is an experiment. I figured I would give this a try. Well, thank you, Lower and Deeper. Thank you very much. And if there's anyone else uh, who wants to hop on here and say a few words, uh, now we know how to do it. So there you go. There we go. All right. So if anyone else wants to hop on and join our conversation tonight, why they can just uh, do that. Um, we've been looking at world events and the news and what's been happening. And uh, yeah, not particularly thrilled. Oh, oh, looks like Keaton, Keaton, the great Keaton Mansfield is wanting to hop on. So Keaton has requested. So how do I do this? Oh, two requests. All right. So we got Keaton first and then we'll go to R R Ruka. On Ruka. Keaton, what's up? Says you can now speak. Oh, he's connecting. Hey, what's happening? Hey. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, sir, but you're you sound a little bit far off. Okay, well I'm I, I I'm I guess I'll hold my phone closer to my mouth since I've got my microphone. I had the phone down by the microphone because I wanted everyone to hear you. What's on your mind tonight? I just, I just wanted to say, Caleb, um, I think it's so great you're doing the Twitter space. Uh, I'd also like to mention I'm currently driving through your home state of Ohio on my way back home. You're on. And, um, you're driving through my home state of Ohio. Can everyone hear him? By the way, people in the chat on YouTube, can you hear him? All right, very good. So keep going. Beautiful. Okay, very good. Very, very, very good. Wow, I am such, you know, people say I'm a boomer at heart, even though I'm, you know, a millennial. Uh, but maybe this is, you know, I'm struggling here with technology, and this is me being a boomer. Uh, so there you go. This is my boomer side coming out as I struggle with technology. Wild times. Wild, wild times. Okay, very good. I'm figuring this out one little bit at a time. Wow, wow. All right, well, I got one more request, and it's from Ruka. So let's see what Ruka wants to say. Hey, Ruka, what's happening? Hello? Oh, hello. Hey, uh, what, what's on your mind? Yeah, so I had a question for you. Oh, uh, boy, a question. I know. So you've, had, you've been tweeting about how um, grain prices are going up, right? You know, especially with the Ukraine, you know, the block of fertilizer, you know, and such. Sure. A lot of stuff. Yeah, so... Uh, if I remember correctly, the last time food prices got this high, we had the Arab Spring. So do you think these rising food prices could like result in something similar? Because this is kind of what triggered the Arab Spring you know, back in 2011. Sure. Well, on a recent stream, I actually made a parallel between this and the Arab Spring because it seems like uh, there is right now an effort on the part of U.S. leaders to cause as much turmoil in the global economy as possible. 
Um, and I think that's very, very likely uh, that we could see another big explosion because it's very weird uh, what they're doing. Uh, they are just doing everything they possibly can to make things worse. Uh, I don't know if you heard it. Did you hear about the uh, the uranium? Did you hear the latest one? Uh, what was that? Well, apparently, right? So it's not enough that, that food prices are through the roof. And it's not enough that gas prices are through the roof. Um, but, you know, 20% of our energy in the United States comes from nuclear power. And the main supplier of nuclear power to the United States is the Russia state-run uranium. They supply uranium. Uh, the Russian state company supplies uranium to the United States. So the U.S. Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, former governor of Michigan, just came out and announced that she's actually gonna, we we're going to stop getting uranium from Russia. So uh, at the very least, everyone's electric bill is going to go through the roof as well. Um, and it's insane. It's like they want to make things as bad as they possibly can and have like a controlled release. So I think you might be onto something there, actually. Yeah, actually, I think there's a, there's a really good example of this, actually. Um, well, first of all, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka, you know, there's been massive protests you know, mm -hmm. against the rising oil prices. But to give a good example, so in Cuba, right, a lot of people were upset, you know, due to lack of tourism, due to, you know, rising prices in America dumped a million dollars to AstroTurf, you know, these protesters and to turn it to a big scandal. You know, you might have seen this, you know, the the Cuba protests, they were sure. largely funded by America. They were trying to play off the struggles of Cuba, you know, to kind of make, you know, an event to kind of, you know, cause chaos to the Cuban government. What? Already playing off this. You mean it's not just Cubans who want freedom and they just don't want freedom from the evil dictatorship? You mean the United States? They want States? freedom from the embargo. They want freedom from the embargo. Yeah. No, it's wild. Yeah, but if you bring this up to any liberal, they go, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. That's a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Oh, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. Um, you know, uh, but there you go. Um, wow. I mean, that is that is certainly interesting about the grain prices and that parallel. I do remember that the Arab Spring, there was a huge drought in the Middle East, right? Is that am I correct on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, and also on that note, there's going to be a lot of droughts for many U.S. states. Right, right. And um, if I remember correctly, there was a huge drought in U.S. states. Uh, or there was a huge drought in the Middle East that was happening. Um, and so what is the country that was destroyed as a result of the Arab Spring? Uh, Libya. And what, what did Libya have? It had the world's largest irrigation system. So if, if the conditions of the Arab Spring were you know, in response to drought, you know, the USA didn't make anything better by destroying the country that had the biggest irrigation system on earth, the great man-made river, you Honestly, know. You yeah, know, especially with Libya. I think the main reason why the US got involved with Libya was because Gaddafi was trying to, you know, nationalize his economy. He didn't want to, you know, kind of suck up to these neoliberal policies. I think that's why they got him mostly. It's because he didn't want to play the game of, like, neoliberal trade. Sure, sure. And his own economy. it's worth noting that before the USA went into Libya, there was kind of a reproachment. You know, Libya supported the war on terror because they'd been fighting al-Qaeda for years. Um, and so during the Bush years, you know, Libya was kind of getting closer to the United States. And then under Obama, there was the things between Libya and the USA got really good. And they returned the guy that had been charged for being the hijacker. Uh, you know, for the Lockerbie bombing, and he was welcomed back to Libya with parade. And BP opened up some like partnerships with the Libyan state-run oil company. But all of that was just so the United States could get in there um, and embed their people for when the Arab Spring happened. Um, it was kind of amazing to show that, like, you know, the USA will often like you know kiss up to these countries. The other thing, though, that's worth noting is that um, I think that you know, you know, if Gaddafi had not gone out of his way to offend a lot of other people in the anti-imperialist camp. 
um, it's it's unlikely, you know, that they would have sat back and let him be attacked the way they did. You know, um, I think, you know, uh, and I think that was a problem. I mean, you know, Russia and China voted for an arms embargo and that arms embargo turned into a NATO intervention. But, you know, and see what's that? Go on. Uh, you can correct me on this, but I'm pretty sure another big thing was Gaddafi was trying to get up the dollar and go to like a gold. It was like a gold. It's like own currency. Like he was trying to get yeah. up the dollar. He was trying to create an African currency. That's that's absolutely true. He was trying to yeah, create an African currency. That, yeah. You know, there was some like new things about uh, Hillary Clinton's emails, and I think it, I'm pretty sure it said like one of the main reasons they got him was because he was trying to form like an African you know union. Yeah. And this isn't like the Clinton emails. Is it like a whole big thing? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's really, really, um, really fascinating to see, you know, the first book the Center for Political Innovation ever published was our own edition of the Green Book by Gaddafi. Uh, did you know that? I thought it was, uh, Bread Tube Serves Imperialism, but no. I didn't know, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, well, before we published Bread Tube Serves Imperialism, before we published any other book, the very first book we printed was our own edition of the Green Book by Gaddafi that you can buy on Amazon with an introduction by myself. Um, and actually, it is now the top-selling edition of the Green Book on Amazon because we wrote a nice introduction. It has page, page numbers. You know, it's a non-copyrighted book, right? Um, so, uh, you know, uh, my good friend Ramiro laid it out very beautifully. He has the Unmasking Imperialism channel, but he's also a brilliant graphic design artist. Um, and I wrote an introduction all about the Libyan War and how the Libyan War and Occupy Wall Street were key and, and you know, my political awakening. And, you know, Libya, I consider Libya to have been a socialist uh, yeah. country and and yeah, it's quite a popular book. Like, you know, five or six of them sell like every day. Uh, you know, people read that book and it's, oh, it, you uh, know. Maybe, yeah. You know, on the topic of Red Tube Serves Imperialism, maybe you could talk about how Red Tube has been worshipping the Ukrainian neo-Nazis. I mean, like what we're saying, you know, yeah. we want to send more weapons to these Ukrainian neo-Nazis. Instead of helping people in America, we want to send more weapons to neo-Nazis. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it, it's weird. They have this logic where if you don't support sending weapons to neo-Nazis, then that makes you a Nazi. Did you know that? Yeah, it's very well thought Zelensky, out, right? Uh, yeah. Zelensky, he's been getting very close to these like far right, you know, people in Europe, like Orban in Hungary. Like he's very unapologetically. You know, he's also he wants to make Ukraine just like Israel. He's pretty much unapologetically on the side of far right. I don't know why people are confused on this. Yeah, well, um, oh, Keaton's still here. Okay, go ahead, Keaton. I didn't know you were still here. Go ahead. Very good. Very good. Yeah, you also probably might have known this, but Zelensky actually banned every single communist party from running. Yes, and banned all the communist parties. And didn't ban the Nazi parties, right? The Nazi parties are there, and they're an official division of the military. I hear so much of these excuses from the liberals. They'll say things like, uh, my favorite is they say, well, don't you think there's people in our military that are neo-Nazis? Well, yeah, but they don't have a special Nazi division. They, you know, they didn't create like the U.S. Marine Corps Nazi division and give them special uniforms with lightning bolts on them. Give me a break. You know, um, it's it's so ridiculous. The excuses you get and then, oh, Zelensky's Jewish. You know, it's like, wow, you know, uh, you know, that that doesn't make a huge difference. They've been having torchlit marches ever since he got elected, uh, calling for his ouster and his overthrow. Uh, so that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, he came in on a peace platform and wasn't able to deliver. And, uh, you know, he's basically a puppet of NATO and the United States and NATO and the United States have cultivated these extremist groups. So there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, it's particularly ridiculous. And somehow in the mind of BreadTube, if you don't go along with this and support the people who are tearing down the World War II memorials, 
the people that are tearing down uh, you know, the World War II memorials and building statues of a Nazi collaborator, a participant in the Holocaust named Stepan Bandera, then somehow that makes you a Nazi, which doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But you see, what it really means is that that the U.S. imperialists are trying to give themselves a woke makeover and say that U.S. imperialism and free market neoliberalism goes around the world liberating oppressed people and spreading human rights. And if you don't go along with that, you must be against them. So you're by de facto a Nazi. That's the only the only logic they have. I, I do must wonder, I like, you know, if we're going to talk about saving oppressed people, what about the oppressed Romani and Jewish people who are getting attacked hate crime by neo Nazis in Ukraine? Oh, of course. These oppressed people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you. I mean, the pictures. We can't show them on my my YouTube channel, but you can see them all over Twitter. The people tied to lamp posts. Uh, you know, with with uh with with uh you know the the stuff painted on their face that causes long term eye damage. They're stripping them from the waist down. I mean, these are. These are vicious, murderous people, you know, um, and uh, and the USA supports it. And if you so much as bring it up, they just call it. Oh, that's a conspiracy theory. They don't even say they don't even yeah. try to debunk it. It's you know, it's something funny, too. You know, Chomsky had a very mild take on Ukraine. He said, you know, uh, I think we should try to peace. You know, instead of going to a full bloody war, let's try peace. And everyone in BreadTube was freaking out and calling him a crazy thing. Yeah, yeah, and that's how I mean that's how they are. Breadtube is so obviously at this point. I mean, you know, I said that they were uh, an imperialist operation. I didn't name an agency or anything because Dr. Steve Hassan is advising them. I, I know that for a fact. I've gotten that information from a very good source, and then we've seen more and more come out. I mean, his relationship with Caleb Kane of Faraday Speaks and and some others. That's a fact. And Steve Hassan's intelligence connections are very, very very well documented. Let me just put it that way. I go into great detail about who Steve Hassan is and his relationship with all kinds of different people. Like, you know, the top military psychologist, Robert J. Lifton, who is his mentor. Yeah. And, uh, and, but anyway, so I, I go into to that and I just pointed out that, you know, they're probably in the way they're promoted. So widely on social media indicates they're getting some support. And then it was Max Blumenthal who went as far as proving, actually proving, um, you know, that uh, that uh, that they were getting funding. Uh, Abigail Thorne, we now know, was getting funding from the British government, uh, from a, like a nonprofit that's tied to the British royal family and funded by the British government. So now we know it's a fact. Uh, so what I wrote in the book is now documented fact. And if you bring this up, the red two people just go, oh, it's not interesting. And they just laugh. Oh, everyone who disagrees with you is CIA. That's not what we said. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Another thing. That you should probably maybe keep your eye on is if you know the Solomon Islands, you know, mm-hmm. they decided they yep. would do a deal with China. Right. But and so all of a sudden, right after Australia did a deal with China, for some reason, you know, Australia and America were like, oh, Solomon Islands, they're corrupt, they're evil, they're probably you know, doing this and that. So I feel like, you know, if we're going to see, you know, the next type of like AstroTurf thing, the next type of, you know, American invasion, I feel like it's going to be Solomon Islands, you know, or any of these, any of these countries that want to side more with China instead of sucking up to neoliberalism. They're kind of, I feel like they're going to be the next target, if anything. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Ruka, uh, for your input. I really do appreciate having you on here. And I think the next, we're going to bring on uh, my good friend, Dust James. But before we do that, um, before we bring on Dust James, uh, I did want to tell people to retweet this. Um, I know we didn't give it the sexiest title because I've never done this before. I think I might be able to change the title. Um, you know, so maybe we'll do that later on. But retweet this. Uh, bring people on. We're up to, so we're on you know, YouTube right now doing this live. Um, and on YouTube, we've got 243 people watching. And now um, I believe I'm trying to see how many people are in the space now. Um, the space, we have 33 people. 
Um, and anyone can just hop on. So this becomes a call-in show because we're on the space. So, all right, Dust James requested. And now how do I... Oh, I got four requests. Dust James. Welcome, Dust. How you doing? Hey, Dust. Oh, you're muted, Dust. You want to... Un- hey, how's it going, y'all? It's good. How are you? Y'all hear me? I think it was like 34... Did you already say that? I know it was a cutout for a minute there. Yeah, yeah, we're up to about 34 people watching, yes. Yeah, right on, brother. Uh, yeah, this is interesting. How'd you got this set up? You just got it on speakerphone by your computer? You I've got it on speakerphone right next to my Blue Yeti microphone. That's how I'm doing it. And people on the YouTube are kind of complaining that they can't hear the guests as well. So I'm trying to hold you as close to the microphone as I can. Uh, I've never done this before. This is like an experiment, and we just decided to just jump right into it. Uh, pretty wild, but that's what we're doing here tonight. Isn't it wild? Yeah, I've been experimenting with these spaces myself, and I find that compared to my YouTube audience, I get a very diverse amount of people that I can engage with rather quickly. It's a it's a very positive tool to use. Great. Um, I may maybe I've been I don't know why those smart speakers like the Google and the Chrome things. They have really great sound. Maybe I'll try to Bluetooth through there and hook that by my microphone. Mm, okay, that would help the the audio. Yeah, I just got off. Um, I just I did uh, three lives. I, will, I did one pre-recorded session and I did two lives for my channel today. Um, not that I wanted to do all that in one day, but it just seemed to be the best schedule, um, giving my my work schedule. Um, I did a talk with uh, brother Ewoks, my brother B-Level from Ewoks on Hens. He's a mutual comrade, um, pan-Americanism um, with, a, with a Chicano comrade and a Puerto Rican comrade um, trying to bridge the divide between um, revolutionary nationalists and Marxist-Leninists of oppressed nations and the American patriot um, perspective, try to build bridges build coalitions, come to to better understandings with that. He's going to put that out later. Um, I, I did um, a recap with brother uh, Max DeSax out of D.C. and the brother from Ev- Evansville, Indiana on their May Day live on my channel. And I also did a, a, a study um, of the demands on the principles put out by the organization founded by Marcus Garvey, hmm. um, is as well. So it's been a it's been a busy day. That's pretty wild. Well, there you go. Well, keep doing the great work you're doing, Dust. I got a couple more people that are um, that are requesting, and uh, and then we'll probably bring the Twitter space to an end. But this is a, a neat little device here. This is how we can do call-ins from here on. Um, and I might do these more often when I just have a few words to say or something. Anything else you want to add? Uh, people should go subscribe to Dust Chain, Dust James' channel, by the way. It's a great channel, Working Class uh, Revolt, uh, Anti-Imperialist America. It's great stuff. No, uh, thank you, brother, for everything you do, and everyone have a good one. All right, thanks. Thanks, Dust. All right, cool. All right, we got John McCarthy. Can you hear me, John? John McCarthy. Hey, John. John, you want to unmute your speaker? Okay, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now, John. How you doing? Good, good. I can be kind of long-winded, but I just had one quick point. 
uh, today. Okay. Uh, pre- previous caller, uh, Roca, I think was his name. He, he mentioned the droughts that are going to hit uh, southeastern states uh, 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 very soon. Uh, and I just wanted to remind everybody that uh, you have proposed uh, the solution to this, mm-hmm. uh, which is a river of life. Right. Yes. And it's a... Uh, these drugs are coming, so not only is that a good idea, but it's a, it's a necessary idea. Yeah, and we are planning to, uh, we're actually planning to do some outreach tomorrow in New York City. We're having a kind of a small speak out about it. Uh, we obviously don't announce ahead of time where it's going to be, but, you know, New York City folks, uh, you know, that are connected with us know, and, and some other people from the Schiller Institute and others, and we're going to be in the streets tomorrow promoting the River of Life. Uh, so that's going to be really awesome. So I'm really excited about that. And if you go to cpiusa.org, you can read this statement we put out. You know, we should have a mass irrigation project. Instead of spending money on wars overseas and bombing and killing, uh, we ought to have this mass ir- irrigation project to bring water to rejuvenate the farming states of, of, of America. That's the idea. You know, it's pretty basic, pretty simple. You know, I don't have, I don't have a blueprint. I'm not an architect. Uh, you know, I'm not an engineer, but just seems pretty basic that we ought to have uh, the river of life, you know? Well, you mentioned the Schiller Institute. Uh, I was active with them many, many years ago, and they actually have done a lot of work on the uh, engineering aspects of this. They they had a proposal. Well, it wasn't their proposal, but they pushed a proposal many years ago called NAWAPA, the North hmm. American Water and Power Alliance. Hmm. Oh, okay, well... <laughs> If they have literature on that, I'd love to read it. I, I haven't discussed this with them. I know they're really into, um, they're really into, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, infrastructure and, and such like that. So that's pretty cool. They put a, a mass pamphlet out in, I think it was the 80s, called Won't You Please Let Your Child Have a Glass of Water. Wow. That's a clever name for a pamphlet. So, yeah. yeah they, they, predicted, they predicted exactly what's going on right now with these trucks. Well, very good. All right. Well, thank you, John, for that. Uh, we're going to let, like, I think two more people in. Um, I see Anti-Imperialist Party uh, has been trying to get in for a while, so we're going to let him in, and there we go. Anti-Imperialist Party, how you doing? You there? Anti-Imperialist Party? Hey, how's it going, Caleb? It's good. How are you? It's going good. This is MJ. Um I usually watch your stuff on YouTube. I go by MJ and I'm over here in California. Cool. And um, I really appreciate your work. Just a few days ago, I made, I made my own party. I made the American anti-imperialist party. People might think it's crazy, but I'm so tired of the duopoly. I'm so tired of kind of what this country has been doing. I mean, once you start learning about what this country has done, um, you start to kind of waken up. And so I think the, the key thing is education and that's why i really appreciate your work because you go into the history you bring up the economic side of things you bring up the social side of things so i think that's huge um what the anti-imperialist summit on revolutionary blackout network was really great you were on there jimmy Dore was on there um some some other comrades like on the international scene and i just kind of i just kind of want to say like you know this education aspect is huge and important and i hope we can kind of just spread the word of the basic history of what this country's doing like like you guys mentioned before we think we're doing some noble cause over there in ukraine but it's the complete opposite and 
like our World War II veterans would be rolling and turning in their graves right now, right now if they knew what was going on. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty unbelievable. And, uh, you know, the Center for Political Innovation, we're an education project. Uh, that's kind of what we are. We're to bring education. So we don't endorse any political party. Uh, someone gave us a super chat, Piano Man. So thank you, Piano Man, for the super chat. Um, you know, we don't endorse any political party, but, um, but, you know, we have people that are part of the Communist Party that are with us. There's people part of the Party of Communists that are with us. Uh, there's people in, in various parties. And we are just an educational project trying to bring an anti-imperialist and socialist message to the people in a way they can understand and putting forward policy solutions uh, to move the United States toward a, a more rational economy. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe maybe your anti-imperialist party and our, uh, you know, our think tank, uh, maybe we can collaborate at some point. I'm going to be, you mentioned you're in California. Uh, we have people in California and, uh, you know, I'm sure they'd like to get in touch with you. Uh, we just had a great Zoom call today um, about what we're doing. And um, so, yeah, we should be in touch. I would definitely be interested in that. And, um, you know, the whole thing is, I mean, in my heart, I'm, you know, kind of communist. But the thing is, is I think it's a hard sell for the American people right now. Um, I think there's too many, too many people that are just turned off with that idea. I hope we can change it. But that's kind of why. I'm throwing this out as an American anti-imperialist party. Well, and that's what people don't get. I, I get all this hate for wanting to form, you know, talk about socialism with American characteristics and such. But we need to communicate to the broad masses of Americans that we're not against them. We don't want to destroy their country. We want to make life better by breaking out of this global imperialist financial system and developing an economy that serves the people, not the huge multinational corporations. Um, and it just seems like common sense. If you go around and tell people, hey, I want a communist revolution, they think you want to run through their neighborhood with guns and turn the country into a civil war. And that's not serious politics. Serious politics means that you actually want to make life better. And that means, you know, communicating patriotism to some degree or other, not national chauvinism, not bigotry, but it's 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 different. Um, you know, and and I and we get so many people and the problem with social media really is that it stops being about actually winning people over, actually getting to the broad masses of people. And it starts uh, becoming who can look the most badass and performative and woke and revolutionary on social media. And that's a problem, right? Social media is not good for our brains. I'm on here using social media to get my message out here. But the problem is a lot of people, they just want to perform for their little corner of social media. And they don't get that if you really want to win over the American people, you need to, you know, lay out a coherent message uh, that can win them over. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Um, I agree 100%. I, I threw up a few basic goals of what this, you know, kind of party I created um, has. They're very general. They're very basic, you know, basic. We want to end the global wars. We want to end the sanctions, realize a multipolar world, um, have fair global trade. And I even threw a general reparations package just for kind of all the destruction we've done. And I, I have a whole Good. section for like American policies that I'm not going to go into too many details, but I just kind of threw it up on my Twitter and I, I put on there to like, please give me suggestions. You know, I want suggestions on what kind of direction that people should go. And, and we want to thank Herb Bryant. He just gave us a super chat as well. Thank you, Herb. Um, but uh, you know, are you planning to run for office on this platform of this party you've just formed? You know, um, I actually kind of do. I've been looking into, I mean, I've been sitting in city hall meetings. I'm looking into run for local office. 
Um, I'm totally over the Democrats and Republicans. So that's why I'm like, you know what? I, it's third, like, I really want to do a third party. And I, I, I mean, obviously the communist party is more established, but I just, like I kind of mentioned, I don't think it's a good sell to America right now. And, and until like, there's enough education. Yeah. Well, we, yeah. I mean, the point is to build a program, something that people can agree to that will change society. Right. You know, that's how these things work in Russia. It was peace, land and bread in China. It was redistributing land to the peasants, defeating the Japanese invaders, you know, and communists can sit at the center of a broad united front to improve people's lives with clear, concrete steps that challenge property relations. And that's the idea, right? If you just go to people with everything, you know, and you demand that everyone agree with the whole full nine yards, you know, it's not going to work, right? The idea is to to put forward a united front around a serious program. And that's what the, the four points of the Center for Political Innovation. Have you read our four economic points? Yeah, um, I, I'd have to go back and check them out, but I have read them. And they all sound on point. I mean, you know, like you guys were mentioning about the River of Life, the irrigation project. That sounds, like you said, like that sounds right on point and basic. And you would think, especially, I mean, if anyone's talk, wanting to talk about climate change, say, hey, well, this would co- combat that. And mm-hmm. food crisis, this would combat that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, there's so many different things that it can help. I mean, bring back jobs here, infrastructure. And one of the things I would love to do is have a nice um, high-speed rail project connecting all of our cities together, plus River of Life. I mean, the sky's the limit. Yeah, we need to come up with with constructive solutions like that to show people what could be done. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. What's your name, by the way? Thank you so much. Um, I go by MJ. MJ. All right. Well, thank you, MJ. I do appreciate having you on. And uh, next, we're going to bring on uh, Mr. He's been waiting a long time. He's got the Lincoln head as his logo. Uh, Mr. Zolwas. Zolwas. Mr. Zolwas. Can you hear me, Mr. Zolwas? Mr. Zolwas? Everyone should retweet this, by the way. If you're on Twitter, you should retweet this. We want to get more people on here. Uh, Mr. Zolwas, can you hear me? I can hear you, Caleb. Can you hear me? I can hear you. What's on your mind tonight? I just want to say, first off, thank you for everything you do, and thank you for having me on tonight. And I want to have a special shout-out to our Northern Ireland comrades for having Sinn Féin clinch for the first time ever the most number of seats in Stormont, which means as of right now, with both parliaments in Ireland, Sinn Féin is the largest political power, uh, political party with seats. And what, one of the first things they did was call for a united Ireland. Nice. So, that's pretty great. All of our Irish comrades, right that, now they are reveling in a good victory. That's really great to hear. Yeah, you know, um, you know, Sinn Fein uh, very much is the expression of of Irish people uh, in Northern Ireland who want independence. And you know, people are critical of Sinn Fein that they're a little more reformist than they once were, uh, but they are the real expression. And that that some of these other groups that are pretty ultra left, you know, I mean, they don't really have a mass base. Um, so. You know, the fact that Sinn Féin is there and Sinn Féin supports Maduro in Venezuela. Sinn Féin supports the Palestinians. So they are an anti-imperialist party in a lot of ways. Uh, they are a socialist party in a lot of ways. They're not a, a hardline ML party, but they are the voice of the Irish liberation movement. And so supporting them is, is really important. And I think that's really, really great to hear that they are uh, that they are having huge electoral gains. That's really great to hear. Yeah. That's uh, kind of all I wanted to go on stage. Keep on doing what you're doing, Caleb. All right. All right. Great. Great to have you on here. Okay. All right. So um, I see there's two more people that are requesting. And 
you know, we do want to do just a regular YouTube live stream at some point, but I'll bring a couple people on. There's one guy I'm not going to bring on because his, his, his name is I snort Coke and I, I, we're not into drugs on here, so I'm not bringing him on. Uh, but I'm going to bring Richard on Richard. How you doing? Richard, can you hear me? Richard, uh, you want to unmute your mic, Richard? There, can you hear me? Uh, can you guys hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you, Richard. How you doing? Richard? Yeah, uh, my mic was keep keep going off. Hey, uh, thank you. Can you guys hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, thank you, man. Hey, uh, Caleb, I just I actually came over from YouTube. Uh, oh, okay. Actually, yeah, I, I follow you, uh, your live streams all the time. Uh, so my question that I had was, uh, someone uh, was debating with me, and they said uh, about the Ukraine war, and the question was that they said that you were being so anti-American imperialist that you kind of, uh, that, that you kind of, like, not seeing the Russian imperialist is going on. So, well, I thought I was a chauvinist because I waved the American flag. I'm a national chauvinist. I'm a blind American patriot who denies genocide and supports empire and wants to colonize and oppress all black people. That's a new one. So, I'm so anti-imperialist that I that I don't recognize Russian imperialism. Now, that's an interesting one, right? They can't make up their minds. Am I too anti-American? Or too pro-American. Which one is it? But uh, there you go. Continue. They're saying that I. What, what else are they alleging? That I'm that I'm supporting no, Russian. No, no, I, no, I wasn't saying. No, I wasn't saying that they were saying about you. I was saying. Yeah. yeah. I was debating with them. And they sure, were, sure. And being that being so anti-American imperialist that you're not seeing the the Russian imperialist that's going on mm -hmm. in Ukraine. Okay. So I was. Yeah, that was my main question. Like, well, yeah, yeah, no, it's a fair question. I just, I, I was just pointing out the irony that I, I, they can't make up their minds. Am I too anti-American, or I, you know, I just think it's funny. But no, I'll, I'll directly answer that, which is that imperialism is an economic system. It's not a term for when troops go into a country, right? Um, and that basically, what's going on is that Russia uh, is protecting the people of the eastern regions, uh, and that they have been bombarded. They've been under attack. Uh, for the past eight years, um, and that uh, that this is a situation where the USA toppled the government of Ukraine in 2014 and installed a fanatically anti-Russian government, um, and that Russian government started persecuting the Russian-speaking people of the eastern regions. They declared independence, uh, they, and they wanted Russia to recognize their independence, but Russia actually said no, um, and they, they facilitated the Minsk Agreement, uh, which was to bring them back into Ukraine. And the Ukrainians were supposed to give them their autonomy, but they didn't. Uh, instead, the Ukrainians have been, uh, you know, attacking and bombing and killing their own people for the past eight years. Um, and on top of that, this fanatically anti-Russian government installed by the United States uh, has been threatening to get nuclear weapons. Uh, and at this point, Russia feels that they have to move in. And now we know that it's a lot worse than we thought. Uh, they have these bio labs where they were developing biological weapons, it appears, funded by the Pentagon. They have these biological research labs. Um, and that they've been doing everything they can to basically use Ukraine as a base area to threaten Russia and persecute the Russian-speaking peoples of the eastern regions. Russia held off as long as they possibly could, and now they're moving in for their own security. 
Um, and, you know, if, if Russia was going in there because they wanted to exploit the people of, of eastern Ukraine, that would be a totally different situation. If Russia was trying to ensure economic domination of eastern Ukraine or something, that might be a different story. But, but that's not what's going on here. Russia is basically protecting their own security and protecting uh, the, you know, their ethnic brothers, the Russian speaking Rus- uh, the Russian speaking folks in eastern Ukraine and the Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk. Um, and it's actually costing Russia quite a bit of money. You know, I've been to Crimea. And, uh, you know, the amount of money that Russia has poured into Crimea for economic development is not small. I mean, they have really done a lot to develop them. And, uh, you know, the relationship that Russia has with the world is not an imperialist relationship. Imperialism is when, you know, one country is dominating the economy of another country, preventing a country from developing its own industries and resources, you know, keeping a, a country poor so that they can stay rich. It's about holding back economic development. That's what the imperialist relationship is. That's what the United States and Britain and France and Germany do to countries all over the world. That's why Africa is still underdeveloped. You know, that's why there's so many people in South America that don't have access to running water and electricity. Imperialism is an economic relationship. It's not a term for military intervention. So that's where those folks are confused. But what do you think, Richard? Thank you, man. That was the question that I had. Okay, but I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, what do you think? No, that was great, man. Okay, sure. All right, very good. Okay, well, I see a couple other people are requesting, and this is fun. Uh, this is a little bit fun, so uh, maybe we'll uh, we'll add... Oh, my good friend, Jay Therapol. I met Jay, actually, a while back. I met him in Russia at the World Festival of Youth and Students, I believe. Jay is connecting. It says connecting, connecting, connecting. Jay, unmute your speaker. Can you hear me? I can. How are you, mate? How are you? You're out in Australia. How are things going? Oh, how are things going? Um, well, it's not as bad as uh, as over in the United States because our supply chains with China are shorter. So I can say that at the very least. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, evil China is oppressing you. They're gonna gonna move into the Solomon Islands, you know, and you have no choice but to invade. I'm just kidding, of course, just kidding, right? Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I was having, I just got off the phone with uh, with somebody from the Citizens Party here in Australia, which is related to the LaRouche movement. Mm-hmm. And I just said to him, it just occurred to me, I said, you know, we have the opposite stance towards China that we need. What we have with China is hostility and free trade. When what we actually needed for the past like 20, 30 years is, uh, is friendly relations and protectionism. So we get the exact opposite of what would actually serve Australia's national interests. Yeah. It's crazy. It, it does sound like it. Um, are you part of Australians for a new democracy? I am, I am. Um, so it's kind of fledgling right now. Uh, we haven't really gotten it off the ground, but hopefully, uh, hopefully, once I I finish with my PhD and all of that's uh, said and done, I'm going to be able to spend more time on uh, on A and D. Well, very good. Yeah, it sounds like you know a lot of good work is done. I know David Fox and Helen Woolley are very excited about this new organization that's you know aligned with the CPI out there in Australia. So uh, very good, very very good. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with your line on so many things. You know, I think it's actually quite refreshing to hear people make the argument that you can be patriotic, you can talk about a love of your country, especially even if it's a country like the United States, you know, God forbid, <laughs> or, sure. uh, or a country like Australia. Uh, it, it is possible to love your country. And, and in fact, that's probably the only effective strategy. It doesn't, it's not a good look to say that, you know, you want socialism, but you hate your country. And I think in many ways, uh, that particular brand of socialism has been pushed by certain compromised individuals 
um, if you catch my drift, uh, because they know that it's not going to work and it turns people away from the idea of more egalitarian social order. Well, and, and there's more to it than that. I mean, you know, we can, we can do a deep dive if you want. This book, Settlers, the Mythology of the White Proletariat, which is, you know, pushed really hard in leftist circles now. It's got very shady origins. No, any, no one knows anything about the author. Um, and we can also go into the fact that, uh, you know, one of the main promoters of this kind of land back idea is a professor in Colorado named Dr. Ward Churchill. And Dr. Ward Churchill was a CIA propagandist in Nicaragua. Uh, he basically went down and made promotional videos for the CIA claiming the Sandinistas were oppressing the indigenous people. And when Russell Means, a Native American activist, uh, you know, uh, when he was basically doing propaganda for the CIA, Ward Churchill was his handler and his speechwriter. He wrote all his speeches for him. So, you know, he's been pushing this. And the other thing is a lot of these kind of, you know, this, you know, Americans are all evil. They're all Euro settlers. You know, we sh therefore we should never fight for economic justice, all of that. Um, that actually, in a way, that's that's an austerity narrative, right? You want them to be poorer, right? Uh, you, you know, I mean, it, it served, you know, uh, and it's very, very interesting. Like, you know, I mean, you can't really support Chris Smalls and the Amazon union struggle and support settlers, right? Because Chris Smalls, he lives on U.S. soil and he's benefiting from imperialism. So he deserves to be poor. You know, you know what I'm saying? The workers at Amazon in Staten Island. Were, yeah, yeah. It, it's a really bizarre narrative. And so it puts so-called leftists on the same side as the big monopolists that are trying to deindustrialize the United States and drive down living standards. Um, you know, so in, in a weird way, even though it seems so radical, when it really gets down to it, it puts you on the same side, uh, pushing austerity as the imperialists are. Um, it's particularly wild, right? Um, you know, uh, the worst example of this that I heard was uh, a couple of years after I left the Workers' World Party in the United States, which I was with for many years, the teachers of West Virginia went on strike. Um, and they went on strike. It was the teachers of West Virginia and they did it without the union's approval. It was a wildcat strike. Teachers all across West Virginia were refusing to go to work in protest of, of some of the new conditions that they were facing. And, you know, it was a big, huge up thing. And it's in, you know, Michael Moore and his movie, he highlighted it. It was a working class pro union upsurge in the state of West Virginia, uh, which is, you know, I mean, is historically the labor unions there have been strong, but it's also a quite conservative Trump state. And so it was, it was kind of exciting to see workers in motion. So then um, the, the local branch of the Workers' World Party was dominated by these third worldists, and they put up a statement on the, their Facebook page, and they said that they didn't support the teachers' strike, and that these teachers were living on stolen land, and instead of going on strike, they should pay reparations. And, and then they put in bold letters the, the words, one settler, one bullet, basically announcing they wanted to, you know, talking like scabs, like they wanted to shoot the, the workers that are on strike. And, uh, and at that point it became clear how toxic this stuff is. And it's funny. And I've mentioned this on social media that, you know, if you really follow the, the land back, uh, you know, you know, uh, mythology, the white proletariat settlers, you follow that to its conclusion. Uh, you're against the working class. People say that never happens. You're making that up. No, I saw it with my own eyes. It happened in the workers world party. Yeah. I've seen it many, many times. I saw it during occupy wall street, uh, during occupy wall street, there were all these people that insisted occupy wall street was racist because that land is already occupied because it belongs to the native Americans. And it's like, no, no occupy is a verb. It's just something you do. If you go to a space where you're not supposed to be, you're yeah, occupying. Like, yeah. What's up? You know, I to say that, uh, that, you know, a lot of times when I've engaged with these kind of people, they accuse me of being reactionary. And then, you know, once I decided to just hit back and say, well, do you know what the word reactionary means? Because uh, <laughs> the reason why, like, you know, 
<laughs> the reason why the word even exists is because it's the opposite of revolutionary. And so reactionary is when you want to want to resurrect uh, a particular time in the past, you know. So why are white nationalists reactionaries? Because they want to resurrect the, the demographics of the United States as it looked in the 1950s. Sure. But the only way that you can do that is by, like, you know, violence and terror. Right. Um, but if you want to kind of turn back the clock to, let's say, 1492, <laughs> and, like, make it look like it did back then... And that would involve far more violence and terror because you're going back even further. Revolutionaries don't do that. Revolutionaries look at the situation as it is today and they see that there is like, you know, the it's like a plant trying to grow through concrete, you know. It's like our job is to smash the concrete so that the plant can grow, so that we can realize our potential. Yeah. Um, so that's my, my first response. Do you have any thoughts to that, I guess? Well, I do. I mean, and the thing is that they make it an either or. Right. You can support indigenous people. I mean, the conditions on the reservations and what they're subjected to are horrendous. You know, you can support indigenous people and their demand for sovereignty, their demand for, you know, more reparations and funding so they can have a better life. You know, you can support that without being a person who says that no white person ever has the right to go on strike. You know what I'm saying? And it's like they create this either or where the second that you're not on board with the whole settlers thing, the whole land back thing you're immediately therefore a white nationalist or a white supremacist. And it's like, that's not how these things work, you know? Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's really disturbing. And, and then it, it becomes a moral question and people want to perform. They want to look like the most woke, the most revolutionary on social media. They're not really interested in building a real movement to really achieve something. It's about how can I look on Twitter? Yeah. The other thing is, is, I will just say this, I've noticed, and this is very weird, but any tweet attacking patriotic socialism gets boosted on Twitter. Um, and any tweet attacking yeah, me, yeah, gets boosted. And you'll notice that, that you know, so Haas was banned from, he was banned from, uh, from Twitch. And the Financial Times did a story about him, accusing him of being a Russian agent. Jackson Hinkle was banned at the same time. Financial Times didn't mention him. I have Russian state-affiliated media tagged on my Twitter. So the three main voices of patriotic socialism are all basically been tagged by the deep state. And now any tweet that criticizes us gets boosted. Um, you know, I mean, this I is so clearly... What's that? Well, you should take Twitter to call for defamation. They're accusing you of being Russian state-affiliated media. I mean, you don't work for them anymore. Right, right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's a fair argument. I mean, it's interesting because it's like, it's a little bit different in the United States with defamation, right? I mean, it works a little bit differently, but that there, there could be a case there, right? I mean, I know in English law, you have to like, you know, it, it's very different. Uh, but here in the United States, you have to prove intent. You have to prove, you know, you have to prove intent. You have to prove, yeah. you know, it, it's a little bit different. And that's Trump was complaining. He wants the, uh, the defamation laws to be closer to what they are in like Australia and Britain. Uh, but, you know, here in the United States, I mean, you have to prove intent, you have to pro prove damage, you have to, pr it's very hard to win a, a defamation lawsuit, especially if you're a quote unquote public figure. Um, you know, if, if you're just a, an average person, you're more likely to win, right? I mean, if it's just an average person, someone posts all over the internet that they have an STD or something like that, they can win. But if you're a quote unquote public figure, you're in the media, it's very, very hard to, to win uh, a lawsuit like that. Um, so there you go. Um, yeah, but, uh, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm raising the argument with the uh, with the Citizens Party here, which is a branch of the LaRouche movement. I'm saying that we in Australia need our own government-run social media platform because otherwise, what it means is that uh, you know some nerd in Silicon Valley can uh, can can censor our elected politicians, and that's already happened. I mean, your I mean your former president Donald Trump, right, is still not allowed on Twitter, right? I mean that's 
yeah. itself is an affront to democracy. Absolutely. So I would I would argue that every country in the world should have its own government-run social media platform. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, it's been really great to have you on, Jay. Uh, you do great writing. You've written some great articles about anti-imperialism and such. And, and you know, it's really, really great to have you on here. Best wishes to you and all the comrades out in Australia. We're now going to bring on, uh, we haven't had a woman yet, and Charlotte Pritt uh, wants to get on and talk. So I'm going to bring on Charlotte Pritt. So there we go. Uh, welcome, Charlotte Pritt. How are you? She's connecting. It's connecting. But yeah, it's we haven't had a woman speaker yet, and Charlotte Pritt is requesting to speak. So go ahead and unmute, Charlotte. What's on your mind? Charlotte? Hey. Can you hear me now? I can hear you, Charlotte. How are you? I'm doing great. It was interesting. I came in when you were talking about the... Um about the teacher strike in West Virginia. And just to give a little background, my father was the president of the one of the locals, UMWA. My brother was a member of Teamsters. I was a member of WBEA, AFT, and UE. UE in West Virginia is one of the best labor unions. It has more autonomy. And um, I also uh, was the gubernatorial candidate in 1996 for the Democratic Party. And uh, my opponent was Joe Manchin in the primary, and I, I defeated wow. him with a huge grassroots campaign. Uh, and, and I wanted to speak a little bit about what's been happening here in the labor movement. And also say that in the primary, every county in West Virginia went for Bernie Sanders. Heavily. Wow. Wow. And, and, and actually the workers were incest because they have felt as if the Democratic Party, the neoliberal establishment part of the party, has consistently screwed over workers. So it wasn't so much uh, Donald Trump, you know, for Donald Trump as it was a FU Democratic Party mm -hmm. uh, because you've abandoned the labor movement, the environmental movement, you've abandoned the people. Um, so it was very interesting to see that uh, when... Hillary and Trump won. They knew they didn't trust establishment Democrats, and, and nor should they, because they have, as you can see, taken us into war uh, since the since the 90s. The Clinton family, but with NAFTA, with TPP, you know, it just really had a great deal of damage here in West Virginia. And um, I would just say, well, the problem we have is infiltration. Mm -hmm. uh, you see infiltration. Nine and mine workers. My dad was. Uh, a member of the Miners for Democracy, and I was inadvertently thrown into Democrat uh, TDU, mm. Teamsters for Democratic Union, trying to overthrow not only the CIA but organized crime. Mm -hmm. that seems to be a real problem here, um, and I, I can say, <laughs> but I also you're absolutely right. I sued the Republican National Committee that came in and did heavily. Um, against you know campaigns and uh put a lot of money in the state against me in the general election mm -hmm. uh and the, and the democrats here uh also worked against me because i was a probably the most progressive democrat or progressive politician that west virginia has ever seen and um they were terrified that i had beaten joe manchin and that uh they wouldn't be able to handle me if i were in charge of the state and uh, as you all know, there are quite a few resources here. We have a lot of uh, coal, fracking, timbering, um, and we've been in a sacrifice zone for a long time. So I just wanted to let you know that that the teachers were, it was a grassroots, uh, the uh, 
administration did not want to, you know, the leadership did not want to go against their friends in the legislature. And, and being in the House for four years and in the Senate for four years in West Virginia, um, what happens with our progressive community many times, they just get co-opted by, um, by the parties, whichever one is in power. And it's always been a struggle between rank and file and co-opted leaderships within the labor organizations. And, and we also had, um, you know, you think about AFT, uh, Randy Weingarten, here she is, you know, going over there supporting Nazis in Ukraine mm-hmm. rather than understanding. They have a very skewed understanding of what's going on. And, and of course, with the no, no more movement in Africa, um, that, you know, many people are trying to get the disinformation out, you know, to counter the disinformation. But I think what's happened uh, with the labor movement is the infiltration from not only bad actors posing as socialists or workers. Now, I'm, I'm an independent now. I was with a Democrat that I went to the Green Party, Mountain Party in West Virginia, and I was so disgusted about the mandates on COVID that I left the Mountain Party, a Green Party, and now it's just an independent. Uh, because you, you don't, you, if you are for freedom, you don't start forcing people to do experimental uh, experimental drugs. And, sure. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm for choice on all those issues. Yeah. Uh, and, Good for you. Me anyway, too. I just, I, <laughs> I just wanted to add that and um, see if you had any questions, any more questions about what's going on in West Virginia. Sure. Well, I mean, you mentioned TDU and, uh, you know, that the, the struggle to unionize, I believe it was UPS, right? That was largely, that was Ron Carey when he was aligned with TDU. Were, were you part of that? Well, here's how I got part of it. Uh, when I was running, first running for the House in 1985, uh, TDU was running, and my dad was helping, I guess, to some degree, helping Teamsters or Democratic Union. And um, they asked for my dad to come and speak because he was the president of United Mine Workers, and he was also involved with Miners for Democracy and, and you know, was one of the more uh, true blue labor-oriented people. And... Um, he told them my daughter was going to come and speak. And <laughs> I looked very Republican. I had my suit heels on and a little briefcase when I you know, went to speak to them. And they were joking, say, oh, my God, that can't be Garnet Fritz's daughter. She looks like a damn Republican. Hmm. And um, so they were all laughing about it. But I inadvertently went in and, and just talked talk to them about a grassroots campaign and how I was running mine and, and that might be helpful for them. Well, they got really involved in my campaign. And then they also, when I went in to ask for the Teamsters to speak to the union hall, uh, the, the Teamster president in West Virginia, who was in bed with, uh, the, you know, with, with the organized crime and the elements that needed to be taken out, you know, taken, overtaken, because they were, the union was very corrupt under Hoffa. Um, he wouldn't let me in the union hall hmm. and, you know, said that you're not, you're not speaking here. You've been speaking to those TVU guys. And, mm-hmm. uh, I found Rick Blaylock, who was really close to Ron Carey was from West Virginia. And I got to know Ron Carey. And when I ran it for governor in 1996, he came to West Virginia, uh, Jerry McEntee of the, uh, there were several different, um, labor leaders in, in the United States who helped in that campaign in 1996 that uh, 
I, my relationships with Ron Carey were, I always felt him, for me, I don't know what kind of relationships others have had. He was always up front. He was always there to really help anyone whom he felt really did care about working people. Mm -hmm. And it was a, I felt him to be very genuine and concerned about what was happening to the Teamsters and to the rank and file. Right. And then um, for our viewers who may not be familiar, the uh, Bill Clinton Justice Department went after him, if I believe. Is, is that correct? That they, they went after yes. him? Yeah. Also went after, um, oh gosh, shoot, I can see his face right now. He was, he became, he's the president now of um, AFL-CIO. He was with the Nine and Nine workers. Oh, shoot. You know who I'm talking about, Caleb? Uh, Trumpka? Richard Trumpka? Yes, Rich, he went yeah. after Rich. Rich was trying to get our policies. They went after him because he was trying to, to, to uh, get the hands, you know, our, our retirement out of the hands of uh, brokers and bankers and into a fund, you know, that they could all put all of the retirement together and they could be managing it themselves. And uh, powers that be didn't like that one bit. So they went after him, uh, too. They went after him for that. He kind of... He kind of settled down some. I haven't been real happy with some of the things that AFL-CIO has been doing, especially uh, when they were, when I was in um, El Salvador and Nicaragua and Honduras in 1987, mm -hmm. um, a peace mission there, uh, and I was talking to SEIU, hospital workers, uh, the death squads were coming in then, and I found out then that AFL-CIO uh, were fingering, they were, they were actually telling the death squads which uh, which of the members uh, of the labor unions down there were, uh, you know, were in the revolution. And they were getting killed because AFL-CIO was working wow. hand in hand with the death squads. So wow. when I came back, I really let Sweeney, I think Sweeney was in charge then. I really, you know, I called and said, look, this is despicable. And... Um, that was really that. That was before Rich got over there. Rich Trumka got there, but um, at one point, Rich was really going to bat for the workers and the miners and trying to get get us tight, you know, get us away from the capitalists uh, controlling our funds, pension funds. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you if you don't if you don't go along, they'll they will really make your life miserable. Wow. Um, Sounds like I should have you on for like a long interview sometime, you know? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk that No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I mean, it would be great. I mean, we should just do a whole, you know, hour, hour long, hour long conversation at some point for the YouTube channel. Would you be up for that? Well, I don't, I have had some health issues and I've been working with, uh, Jeremy was, was telling me that, that I needed to get, you know, more active and, and I saw your, your thing tonight. So I thought I would just listen, but, um, I never know when my health is going to be such okay. uh, that I can, yeah, but thank you. I appreciate you giving me the offer, but, and offering that to me, but I thought, well, I would just speak up a little bit about what was happening here in West Virginia. And, 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 and actually, um, I believe that our people are still very much dedicated to the working class and to the unions. It's just that we had very few people Every time we get a chance to vote for someone whom we, whom we think will really that we can trust, we do. Mm -hmm. uh, but we the Democrats haven't been feeling anybody, you know, on the national level for some time. Yeah. 
we, we like Tulsi Gabbard because of her stands on freedom, you know, uh, speaking out for Assange and things of that nature. And um, so, you know, and, and I like her stand because she seems to be more sensible than the others about what's going on with war. Yeah. No, I like Tulsi Gabbard a lot, too. I met her one time at a reception uh, where she spoke about, you know, the, how Saudi Arabia is funding terrorism uh, and, and, you know, their, their role and how U.S. foreign policy is creating terrorism. And it was great to interact with her. And, uh, you know, that, you know, what she when she exposed Kamala Harris on the national stage, that was kind of an epic moment. So, you know, well, you you are I, you are someone with lots of experience in the labor movement and lots of experience as an anti-imperialist. Um, and it was really, really great to have you come on here and, and share some of your, your knowledge and your history. I, I'm really glad you hopped on. I'm really glad we, uh, you know, we just, we did this experiment tonight and, and decided to open it up and here you are. Well, it was really great to hear from you. Thank you very much. I appreciate everything that all of you are doing. Thank you. And Thanks I, a lot. yeah, I, I mean, I really appreciate having you on and I mean, it's really been great. And so thank you and, and best wishes to everybody out there in West Virginia. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, I think that we are going to end the stream, not the YouTube stream, but we're going to end the, uh, the, the Twitter stream at this point. We may open up another one. The Twitter space is now over. So I just ended the Twitter space. But we're still here on YouTube. We're still here on YouTube. Um, so that's pretty cool. And that was an interesting experiment. I think we're going to do that one more often. Um, yeah. You know. We're going to do that a little bit more often. Um, should be should be good. Um, but that was really, really great. Um, it was really, really great to have a call in like that. Um, people are telling me the audio at some points wasn't so good, but maybe it got better. So maybe we can figure out like a mechanism if there's a way I could plug my phone into the audio or, or we could play it over the computer or something like that. I'm sure there's something we can do. I'm, I'm again, not huge with the tech stuff. I'm not the best tech guy ever, but yeah, I, I really agreed. It was, uh, that was a great call in, uh, you know, quite a diversity of folks. We had someone from Australia. We had working class folks from the United States. Uh, we just had, you know, you just heard Charlotte Pritt, the, the legendary labor organizer in West Virginia and, and her work. Uh, that was really, really a great, uh, a great call in. Um, that was really, really awesome. Um, so there you go. Um, well, um, folks, I'm not quite sure. This is a, you know, I, I, that was an experiment. It was kind of a last minute idea. I was going to open up the Twitter stream. Um, so, um, I think, you know, I'm not quite sure how we're going to do this next. Um, I do want to answer your super chat questions. So if you have any super chat questions, I saw, you know, the piano man and Herb, uh, sent us a nice super chat, but, um, if somebody has a question, they want me to answer, shoot me a super chat and I will answer it. I will make a point of doing that. Um, you know, um, I will definitely make a point of doing that if you have a super chat question. Um, but yeah, um, I'm quite, not quite sure how to go from here. I don't think we want to do the roll call necessarily. I don't think now would be a good time for a roll call, uh, just because, um, just because we just got off of the Twitter stream. Um, but maybe we should, maybe this should be a roll call. Do you want to do the roll call? What do people in the chat think? Should we do a roll call? Why don't we do a roll call um, and people, a roll call and a call for super chats. If people have super chats they want me to talk about, uh, by all means, uh, send them my way um, and we'll do a roll call as I take super chats. So if you have a roll call, uh, you want to give me your name and location, I'll call you out as I see you. Names and locations. We got Dennis G in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, very, very good. Um, um, very, very good. If someone has a super chat, you know, just shoot us a super chat and we'll answer 
answer the super chat questions. We got Chris Morlock in San Francisco. Let's go, JT24. Army in Vegas. We got Yada Yusril in Chicago. We got Rice from Adelaide, Australia. Pi- Cleveland Pirate Alex. Uh, we got President Jesus in Los Angeles. Dario from Brooklyn, stranded in Florida. Uh, we got Deb in Mexico. We got Lee County, Florida. Clyde Bank, Quinn and Meredith. Anderson, uh, very, very good. Kieran from San Diego, shout out to you. Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, uh, very good. We got Bergen County, North uh, New Jersey. Uh, Adam in Salt Lake City. Carmen in Redding. Got Los Angeles, Bob Troy, John McCarthy in Chicago. Norway, China, Los Angeles, John McCarthy in Chicago. Abe, Highway 61. Brendan in Colorado, Mobile, Alabama. Mobile, Alabama. Kendall in San Diego. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Songs plus revolts. El Dorado. El Dorado. Very, very good. Very, very good to have folks on here. Marta in Poland uh, is with us. Excellent. We got Beirut. Nate Pano from Sydney, Australia. Jared from Virginia. Berkeley in Virginia. Micah from Las Vegas. Char Char Darling from Nassau County, New York. Uh, Stephanie in Berkeley is with us. Vancouver. Hanoi, Vietnam. Hanoi, Vietnam is with us. Um, uh, Very, very good. Hugo from the Netherlands, where it's at. Nathaniel from Washington. Brisbane, Australia. Uh, We got a great Twitter space, says Nicholas Lynch. Yeah, I think it went really well. Javier in Queens. Uh, We got Scott in Miami. Scott and Angie in Miami. We got Andrew in Australia. Melbourne, Australia. San Antonio, Laura Floyd. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Northeast, uh, Pittsburgh. Mosin from Iran, San Antonio. Excellent stuff, excellent stuff, excellent stuff. Good, good times. If anyone has any questions they want me to answer, any thoughts on what happened to American Christianity and how it transformed from what I've heard to be something quite collective to, well, this, that's a good question. We'll write that down. American Christianity, how it transformed. That's a really great question. And I will hopefully give you a really great answer to that. Lily in Sierra Vista, Arizona. Uh, Costa Rica, Fremont, Joe Gale, good friend of ours in Nassau County. I hope I'll see you at the demonstration tomorrow, Joe. I hope you can make it. Um, you know, I know Char Char Darling has been reaching out to you. I hope I see you tomorrow in the streets. Uh, we got we got Herb Bryant in Tampa, Florida. Wada in El Dorio. Answer is the hippies. Um, Caracas, Venezuela. Jose Gonzalez out in Venezuela. Very very good. Naples. And Harold, Harold Sullivan, Naples, Florida. Welcome, welcome. Good stuff. Sierra Vista. Um, very, very good. Very, very good. Uh, Yi Hao in Taiwan, China. Welcome, Yi Hao. I hope I'm saying your name right. It's maybe it's Yi Ho or something like that. Jenny Lin in Cincinnati, longtime friend of the program. Good to have you, Jenny Lin. Always good to have you. Very good. Seattle, Somalia. Ben is in Seattle. Ben Katabriga right? Um, Joshua Tree, Kinky. Kinky's also a great friend of the program. I met Kinky at our meetup in California uh, last uh, last spring or last fall. That was pretty awesome. It was in August, I think. That was pretty awesome. Uh, very, very good. Marissa is in Washington State. Marissa, good to have you. Good to have you, Marissa. Um, yeah. Um, well, folks, um, we are in the process of sending out the invitation to our uh, national gathering for the Center for Political Innovation. It's going to take place in the U.S. state of Kansas. It will be in the state of Kansas, location 
specific location will be made available to those who choose to attend. We were in the process of getting that invitation out. The space is reserved. Uh, Lily Goldklang, good friend of our work here. You guys have known her from her videos. She just interviewed, uh, she did a great uh, interview with um, Jill Stein uh, in, in Boston a couple weeks ago. And Lily's going to be the retreat coordinator for the Center for Political Innovation. We got Marta in Queens. I want to join you in outreach tomorrow. Very good. Um, you know, and, um, and uh, um, yeah, send me an email, uh, Marta. I can send you the details about that. If you want to send me an email, Caleb Moppin at gmail.com. Just send me an email. I'll send you the details of where we're going to be. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome uh, that we're going to be having this retreat. So we just reserved the place. Beautiful place, I must say. A beautiful, beautiful little place to have this retreat. Uh, it's by a nice lake out there in Kansas. Um, you know, nice big room to have all the classes in. It's going to be a great, great event. Four days of Marxist, anti-imperialist education. Uh, different people are going to be given classes. We're working out who's given what classes. Um, so there you go. Why is Maoism on the rise again? Hmm. Not sure I would agree that it is, but Maoism on the rise again. We'll definitely talk about that. If anyone else has a super chat, uh, by all means, shoot it my way. Antonio in Queens. Uh, very good. Um, you know, uh, very good. Yeah. Like I said, just send me an email, Antonio, send me an email. I'll let you know where we're going to be. Uh, it's going to be in Kansas, right? Not the rock band carry on my wayward son. It's not going to be that. Not going to be that. I promise you it will not be, uh, the rock band, Kansas, but rather the state of Kansas, the state of Kansas. Kansas is the home state of John. Well, Okay, it's not the home state of John Brown. He was originally from Ohio. Uh, what was the CPI pledge placed off of? I'll tell you. All right. What was the CPI pledge based off of? And it definitely is based. Uh, but Kansas was the state where John Brown formed his anti-slavery militia that fought against the Confederates. Uh, there was what the period they called Bleeding Kansas, uh, when the pro-Confederate and ant or the pro-slavery and anti-slavery militias were fighting each other, John Brown was the you know the he went out to Kansas to fight against slavery. Um, he led this militia out in Kansas. Um, his house is a museum. I went to visit his house when I was in high school. Very cool house. Um, and so we're going to be in John Brown's home state. Um, the longtime leader of the Communist Party in the 1930s, Earl Browder, he was from Kansas. Uh, his nickname was the man from Kansas. Um, that was actually his nickname. Uh, and on top of that, Superman, the fictional character who gave voice to the anti-fascist and anti-racist and popular social democratic struggles of the Roosevelt years. Um, you know, uh, Superman, he's a fictional character, but there's a reason they made him from Kansas because they wanted him to be a wholesome, you know, salt of the earth, American, anti-racist, uh, progressive. So, yeah, we're really excited to get out there. I haven't been out to Kansas since I was a kid. You know, when I was a kid, my grandparents lived in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, so I used to go visit my grandparents. And sometimes we would drive through Kansas or we'd drive out to Kansas. So it's been so long. So it's going to be really awesome to have this nice four-day retreat uh, coming up at the end of June. Uh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be absolutely awesome. It's going to be tremendous. So if you're a member, it's only open to members of the Center for Political Innovation. But if you're a member of the CPI, uh, you'll be getting an invitation, uh, and hopefully you'll be coming. And uh, we hope to have a decent crowd of people there for our four-day national training school. Um, you know, uh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so there you go. I just wanted to mention that. 
So now I'm going to start answering super chat questions. So if you have another super chat question, uh, we can start answering different super chat questions. American Christianity and how it transformed. That's a very big topic. Very, very, very big topic. Um, very big topic because, um, as, as you know, you know, the settlers to the United States were largely of various Christian denominations. Um, you know, uh, they were from various Christian denominations. You had the Puritans, the Separatists and the Puritans, the pilgrims that came over. You know, you had, I believe, when the United States Constitution was formed. The reason that we have the First Amendment, right? The First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or restricting free exercise thereof or abridging freedom of of speech or freedom of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble for regress of grievances. Um, And what that is about uh, is the fact that, you know, that when the when the Constitution was being ratified, uh, a number of U.S. states uh, had state religions. I believe nine out of the 13 colonies had state religions. And there was a fear that the religion of the big states would be imposed on the religion of the smaller states. So in order to make sure that there would not be an established religion for the 13 colonies, uh, they made a point of saying um, that at that point uh, there would be no establishment of religion. There would be no, that, that's what the First Amendment is about, uh, is that there would be no established religion for the United States. Pennsylvania was settled by Quakers. You know what Quakerism? That's William Penn and the teachings of of William Penn and uh, you know the inner light and pacifism and doing things by consensus. You know it was a a pacifist Christian sect called the Quakers. They settled Pennsylvania and their pacifism did not apply to Native Americans for some reason. Uh, they were quite brutal to the Native Americans, but they were pacifists and they wouldn't fight in wars and so they fled Europe and. That was Pennsylvania. It was Penn's Woods after William Penn. Uh, you know, you had in Massachusetts, you had the Puritans, right? And there were a couple like breakaways. I forget which states it was. You know, you had, what was it? Um, uh, I can't even remember. Some of, the, some of the other states that broke away, it was like Puritans who had a falling out with the other Puritans. They formed like, what is it, New Hampshire or Connecticut or one of those. I can't remember that. Maryland was a Roman Catholic state. It was Mary's land, right? It was after, you know, it was where Roman Catholics could be. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you had state religions in the 13 colonies, um, and, uh, that was a situation and it was a bit of a problem. Um, now what's interesting is, you know, prior to the American revolution influence of Bernays on PR and propaganda culture, that's a good question. Influence of Bernays on PR and propaganda and the culture. Um, you know, you had. Before the American Revolution, there was kind of a wave of religious sentiments. There was just widespread religious sentiments in the United States. There was kind of an upsurge of religious fanaticism. It was referred to as the Great Awakening, um, and it kind of set the stage for the American Revolution. It was like this this wave of religious fervor in the in the thirteen colonies against the British. You know, kind of set the stage, and then it was later. In like the 1830s, you had something called the Second Great Awakening. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. You had the Second Great Awakening. And the Second Great Awakening 
was it was a religious movement that began in New England but spread to Ohio and Pennsylvania and Illinois and some of the newer states that were coming to the United States that was explicitly anti-slavery. It was uh, it was religious people who were anti-slavery. Um, and what's interesting is a number of religious groups that that are big in the United States now can trace their roots back to the Second Great Awakening. Uh, Seventh-day Adventism, for example, that was a movement that came out of the, the, great, the Second Great Awakening. Mormonism also came out of the Second Great Awakening. Um, what do you think the best term for elected officials is? What does that mean? The best term? What do you mean the best term? I don't know what that means. Um, the best term for elected officials. I don't know what you mean there, Steve. Maybe you can clarify. I'll see a follow-up comment or something uh, in the chat, but I'm not quite like term. You think like length they're in office or like what we should call them, or I don't quite know what you're asking me there, Steve. Um, but um, it was called the Second Great Awakening. Um, and that's where, you know, like the tent revival, that's where that comes from, the Second Great Awakening. Um, and, um, you know, it was explicitly an anti-slavery movement. And a lot of the groups in the Second Great Awakening were kind of utopian socialists. They would hold all their property in common. They wanted women to vote. That was one thing that the Second Great Awakening was about. They wanted women to vote. Um, They were against slavery. um, And they were all about like kind of forgiveness, uh, redemption. You know, you've done bad. You've done wrong, but you can be forgiven, right? Um, And the idea was that the sin of slavery was hanging over the United States. They wanted to purify the country from the sin of slavery. Oh, that was the that was the Great Awakening. Um, it was a, a religious movement that swept the United States and kind of set the stage for the Civil War. And I've argued that we are living in the beginning of of the Third Great Awakening, which was the Socialist Awakening. And it wouldn't be a religious awakening because our culture has changed. We're not a religious culture like we once were, but we are now in a period where people are suddenly getting interested. Oh, length in office, Steve says. He says length in office. We're in a period where people are suddenly getting interested in ideas in a way they haven't been before. And there's an openness, you know, we're on here, like what we're doing tonight, this isn't normal, right? This is Saturday night. You all are supposed to be drinking at the bar. You're all supposed to be, you know, going out on a hot date. Uh, you're supposed to be uh, watching the football game or, or the basketball game, you know, but you're all on here. We got 256 people on here right now talking to me about socialism on a Saturday night. That's new. That's a shift in consciousness, right? This kind of thing didn't used to happen. Maybe it happened 100 years ago with Eugene Debs, but it's a shift in consciousness. And I argue we're at the beginning of a shift in consciousness that can lead to eventually setting the stage for some kind of move towards socialism in the United States. Um, So length in office, writing it down. Um, Length in office. Um, And, um, you know, so that's what I would argue. But what happened to American Christianity? Well, you know, during the, um, you know, if you listen to the Joe Hill songs, right? Joe Hill was the great socialist labor organizer, uh, you know, um, you know, dump the bosses off your back, you know, all of his songs are spoofs, um, you know, are spoofs of, of religious songs because to counter the wave of unionizing and union organizing and socialism, you had the rise of the Salvation Army and the Salvation Army, um, that's very weird because we have not had that problem with other people. That's very odd. That's uh, very strange, Dylan. I have not. I have no idea why that's happening um, because other people have not had that issue. Um, and Kinky and I can speak directly about that, but I have no idea why that's happening. Um, you know, um, the the Salvation Army was out there, 
And, you know, they were kind of considered opponents of the socialist movement. And, they, you know, they would feed people and such, but they were arguing that labor organizing was wrong. You just needed religion. And, you know, you had Billy Sunday. I don't know if people have ever heard of Billy Sunday. He was this baseball player, a uh, professional baseball player who became a tent revival pastor. But his, his message was very anti-communist, very pro-capitalist. Um, you know, I think there's a clip of Billy Sunday where he's talking about how wealthy people in the Bible were. He's like, Moses could have had Rockefeller mow his lawn. I mean, it's, you know, he's, he's, you know, bragging about how wealthy people were in the Bible or something. And you know, you had you had the rise of that and that, that, you know, you have the rise of communism as a movement with the Soviet Union, you have Marxism, Leninism, it is anti-religious. And so you saw a lot of religious groups say, this is our opportunity to be used by the establishment as kind of a barrier against communism. And, but then it goes back and forth, right? You had, you know, during the Great Depression, uh, you had various socialist ministers, you know, Norman Thomas, the leader of the Socialist Party was a, was a minister, an Episcopal minister. And he was, you know, he was not a communist and certainly was kind of a social democratic sellout, but he was the face of the Socialist Party of America. He was a minister. Um, and it was kind of confusing. In the 1950s, um, you had, you know, you had the John Birch Society and the emergence of McCarthyism, et cetera. It was really in the 1950s, probably the most, uh, the most, you know, in terms of religion, the most reactionary current was the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has changed a lot since the 1950s. But coming out of the Second World War, the Catholic Church was in an anti-communist frenzy. I mean, the, you know, the communists were the enemy. Kill a commie for Christ. Um, you know, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Trade Union Federations were trying to ban communists from American labor unions. If you were in a union and you were Catholic, you'd join the Catholic Trade Union Federation and you'd try to get all the communists kicked out of the union. Um, you know, the Catholic Church in the 50s was very, very right-wing and anti-communist. Um, that's why if you read anything by William Z. Foster or, or Elizabeth Gurley Flynn or stuff that was published in the 50s, it's going to be very anti-Catholic because they saw the Catholic Church as a main enemy. Uh, the Catholic Church was very pro-NATO at that point. But the Catholic Church during the 1960s, you know, you had Vatican II, which was a, a shift in the Catholic Church. And in the early, the early 60s, um, you know, well, they can directly contact me, Troy. Um, in the early 60s, um, you know, you had Vatican II, which was kind of a shift where the Catholic Church changed a lot of its policies. One of the one of the documents of Vatican II specifically condemns the United States uh, for bombing civilian areas. It has a condemnation. It talks about how the Catholic Church is opposed to any bombing of civilian areas. It's subtly condemning the United States for the bombing of civilian areas during World War II, but it's also condemning what the USA was doing in Korea, um, and that was the beginning of it. Um, you know. Um, you know, that was the beginning of the Catholic Church shifting. You had some priests who were involved in civil rights organizing. It was in Wisconsin. You had a guy named Father Grappi who was marching with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for racial integration. Um, and then, you know, during the during the Vietnam War protests, you had, I think it was, what was it? Father Roy Bourgeois uh, was his name. And he was like, he was burning, burning draft cards and draft records, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Father Roy Bourgeois, the kind of socialist priest, anti-war priest. Um, and the Catholic Church was becoming more and more opposed to the Vietnam War. But really it was, and I've told this story before, the modern religious right, what you can call the religious right of the United States, that is a very different entity. We've always had fanatically religious people in the United States. You know, the people in the Great Awakening, those folks were fanatically religious. I mean, they were really, really fanatically religious. But um, 
Westboro Baptist Church. All right. All right. That's a, that's a weird one. You know, those folks were fanatically religious, but they were progressive, right? Being fanatically religious um, meant you wanted women to vote. Being fanatically religious meant you opposed slavery. Um, but, you know, we've always had religious fanatics. That's almost built into U.S. culture because of the settler history, et cetera. Um, we've always had that. But what we now call the religious right, and, you know, what really generally at this point now takes the form of non-denominational Christianity, you know, mega churches. That is a very new development. And that comes from, uh, from basically started with the hippies, with the Jesus freaks. There was a group of hippies. You know, hippieism, hippie counterculture, long people who grew, young people who grew their hair long. Um, some of them did drugs. A lot of them did drugs. They were into rock and roll music or folk music. Uh, they went to uh, protest for civil rights and against the Vietnam War. It was kind of a middle-class trend, right? It was more working-class people tended to not like it. It was more of a middle-class young people trend, hippies, right? Um, it was baby boomers who got into rock and roll and had their hair long. That was a big, big current, okay? It was huge. And there were many, many variations of hippies, right? There were some hippies that were really into the politics and were really into the activism and the protesting. Not all of them. There were some that were really into the music aspect of it. There were some that were really into rock music. There were some that were really into folk music, right? There were, you know, there were, there were many, many, you know, I mean, the early gay rights movement, 1969, you had the Stonewall riot in New York City where, you know, you know, you had LGBT, an LGBT movement sprung out of the hippie movement. So the hippie counterculture was a very big political current. Um, there was one particular subculture within the hippie counterculture. They called Jesus freaks and they were hippies who were religious and, and for whatever reason, their hippieism took the form of being very religious. Um, and they, they existed, right. And you know, they, there was kind of this narrative of Jesus as the ultimate hippie. Jesus had long hair. Jesus was going around teaching everybody to love one another and said, you know, turn, turn the other cheek and was a pacifist. And, you know, it was kind of, a was kind of a, a variation of the hippie movement. You had what you called Jesus freaks. And the Jesus freaks were left wing. They protested the Vietnam War. Uh, they protested against, uh, against you know, in favor of civil rights. They tended to preach racial unity, racial harmony. Uh, they, kind of, they kind of attached themselves to the religious aspects of the civil rights movement. That was probably the main, the main reason you had the Jesus freaks was because of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It was really probably because of the black struggle. Because the black freedom struggle, the church was such a big part of it, right? And a lot of times the civil rights marchers were, were singing hymns, African-American hymns. You know, you had the black preachers like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others, Medgar Evers and others that were, you know, reciting the Bible to justify the civil rights movement. You had young white people who got into being progressive and being in the civil rights movement who became hippie Christians. And that was a thing that happened. And it was just one little sub variant of the hippie movement. Right. Um, and the thing was that at, at that point, among younger people in the United States, church attendance was dropping. I mean, it was nowhere near as low as it is now, but it was dropping at that point because at that point, young people were questioning things and church was considered part of the establishment. Churches were supporting the Vietnam War. Churches were considered part of the establishment. So going to church was like a square, normal thing. If you were a young, hip, you know, person who was listening to rock and roll music and and you wouldn't go to church. So, but there was this one variation. 
the Jesus people, the Jesus freaks, they were called. The Jesus freaks or Jesus people. Um, and they're just kind of hippie Christians. So Richard Nixon came into office. Now, you have to understand there's divisions in the ruling class. And I used to work for Ramsey Clark. Ramsey Clark was the U.S. Attorney General uh, under Lyndon Johnson. And, um, and you know, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson was escalating the Vietnam War, but he didn't want to go all in. And ultimately, Lyndon Johnson decided not to run for president again because he felt like the USA couldn't win in Vietnam. And he was afraid to go all in in Vietnam. Right. If he, he figured if they started drafting people in the high numbers they needed to, if they started you know bombing like the Pentagon was urging him to, that that was going to be a disaster. So Lyndon Johnson ultimately stepped down um, and that, you know, the CIA uh, started to argue, you know, there were factions within the CIA and there were elements within the Ford Foundation and the Institute for Policy Studies that were kind of pushing the hippie thing. Right. They were pushing it because McCarthyism, they felt, was a threat to U.S. foreign policy. And they wanted, they had a strategy for like negotiating with the Soviet Union and they wanted to use drugs and counterculture and they wanted to fight the Soviet Union with art, with like the Congress for cultural freedom. They didn't want to fight the Soviet Union militarily. So you had kind of a fight between the military industrial complex and the FBI and the CIA and the CIA and the Eastern establishment, the Rockefellers, the CIA, the Ford Foundation, they were kind of covertly supporting the hippie movement. And then you had Richard Nixon, who was supporting J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and supporting the military industrial complex. So in 1968, there was a huge episode of domestic unrest. There was huge rioting after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Every major city in the United States went up in flames. Uh, you know, the black community was rebelling against the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, you had, you know, the protests at the Democratic National Convention where the anti-Vietnam War protesters were being beaten up. You had Columbia University shut down by a campus rebellion. So Richard Nixon won the 1969 election, 68 election. And in 69, uh, he took office and he fired Ramsey Clark, who was the U.S. attorney general. And after he fired Ramsey Clark, he went to the FBI and he, he said, all right, Ramsey Clark, the former U.S. attorney general, he was holding you back. Now I say, go, go get him, guys. And he let the FBI just take the gloves off and viciously go after the Black Panthers, viciously go after students for a democratic society. Um, and he was kind of a Bonapartist. Nixon was a Bonapartist. And uh, there were the hard hat riots where Nixon's supporters went out. And these were construction workers in New York City that were supporters of Nixon, uh, supporters of the Vietnam War. They went around beating up hippies with baseball bats and construction worker tools, hammers and stuff. And they would just beat up random hippies. So you had the hard hat riots and you had you had, you know, you had the FBI going full on with COINTELPRO. So Nixon is coming in. as kind of a Bonapartist who's, you know, threatening the CIA. He's threatening the CIA, he's threatening the Eastern establishment, and he's supporting the military industrial complex. He's escalating the Vietnam War in ways that Lyndon Johnson wouldn't do. He's escalating the FBI repression of, of activists and leftists. Nixon comes in, and Nixon, obviously, in order to do what he's doing, he needs to have support. So one of Nixon's closest allies was Reverend Billy Graham. I don't know if people have ever heard of Reverend Billy Graham, but Reverend Billy Graham was probably the most famous TV evangelist in the United States, Reverend Billy Graham, you know, he was just this pastor from North Carolina and he was a good speaker and a good orator. And he, they made him the face. He was a, he was the spiritual advisor of Richard Nixon and they put him on television and Reverend Billy Graham, somebody advised Reverend Billy Graham. We don't know who, uh, we don't know who somebody advised Billy Graham to start having Jesus freaks on his broadcasts. Um, and he did. 
right? Um, Reverend Billy Graham started having long haired hippie kind of people on his broadcast playing rock and roll songs about Jesus and stuff like that. So that was the, the beginning of it. The next step was uh, Reverend Sun Young Moon. So in South Korea, there was this crazy pastor named Reverend Moon uh, who, you know, you know, I mean, you can go into their history. It's long and complicated, but there was this pastor named Reverend Sun Young Moon who had been a prisoner in North Korea and had moved his back and gotten, you know, released and went back to South Korea. And he was a fanatical anti-communist and he was a sex pervert. He, you know, in a lot of ways, he was like raping, raping members of his congregation. Not a good guy, but he became an asset of South Korean intelligence and they were using him, using him to deprogram communist uh, political dissidents in South Korea. They would arrest communists and leftists in South Korea and uh, in the jail, uh, they would give Reverend Sun Young Moon and his people access to them. And Reverend Sun Young Moon and his people would brainwash them. They did experiments on mind control. And so Reverend Sun Young Moon was, you know, they would take communists, communist political dissidents in the South Korean prisons. They would turn them over to this pastor, Reverend Sun Young Moon, and he would do kind of a brainwashing operation on them. Um, and they would, you know, some of them would come out recruited, you know, fanatical followers of the Reverend Sun Young Moon. And at that point in South Korea, the dictator was Park Chung-hee. And Park Chung-hee was like a Bonapartist strongman in South Korea. So Reverend Sun Young-moon, who was like this fanatical pastor who was working for the dictator Park Chung-hee, um, and Richard Nixon, they reached an agreement. And in 1972, I believe, Richard Nixon arranged for the Reverend Sun Young-moon to come to the United States. And the idea was that the Reverend Sun Young-moon would engage in a an anti-communist recruiting operation. He would stop communists from recruiting on college campuses. Um, that was the idea. So Reverend Sun Young Moon, his religious cult came to the United States and the idea was to prevent young people on college campuses from becoming communists. That was the idea. I mean, this is confirmed. Like I quote, I mean, there's documents about this. It's kind of amazing. So he was on college campuses going around trying to convince young people not to be communists. Um, and what that took the form of was looking kind of like leftists. They would talk about how they were building a peace movement, right? They called their religious movement a peace movement. And they would have people of different races from different parts of the world, people from Africa, people from Korea, people from Japan. And they'd walk around and be like, look, we have people of all different races and we're part of a peace movement. And, you know, the idea, they would kind of recruit people and, you know, take them someplace and brainwash them. And that was how Reverend Sun Young Moon operated. And it looked like some kind of leftist group. But in reality, they supported the Vietnam War. They, they thought communism was the Antichrist. Uh, they worshipped this crazy Korean pastor who thought he was the second coming of Jesus. They were a dangerous group, right? Um, and, uh, but but that, was, that was like a deprogramming operation. It was an attempt to counter communism on college campuses. Right. So the, so Billy Graham was already doing the Jesus freaks thing on his broadcast. Then you had the Reverend Sun Young Moon and what made Moon different than other religious people. Happy birthday, Kinky. I didn't know it was Kinky's birthday. Happy birthday, Kinky. That's great. Uh, what made Moon different than other religious people in the United States was that he adopted a lot of the communist aesthetic. Right. He was leading a revolutionary movement. And he, they were soldiers and they were fighting for world peace and they were a mass movement and they wanted you to give the whole of your lives. And it was an attempt to take the passion and emotions of communism and apply them to an anti-communist movement. It was very consciously that. The South Korean 
CIA. It's called the KCIA, the Korean Central Intelligence Agency. Very much was trying to basically to fight communism, build their own kind of fanatical revolutionary movement that would be anti-communist. Um, that was basically what they were doing very consciously. Like not, it wasn't accidental. It was very consciously. It actually reminds you of in Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. Uh, there is a, a, a couple paragraphs where Hitler says the reason that the Kaiser could not defeat communism uh, was because he didn't have a revolutionary movement of his own, right? The Kaiser, you know, was just defending the status quo and that's why he could never defeat the communists. And so Hitler said, my movement, Nazism, is a revolutionary movement to defeat the communists, right? And that's what, that's what fascism was in Europe. And Reverend Sun Young Moon was doing that in South Korea and that's kind of what it was. It was this movement that looked revolutionary, that looked fanatical, that was trying to save the world, trying to create world peace, but was actually right-wing and anti-communist, right? That was the idea. So Reverend Moon came to the United States and his followers were out there building a kind of Christian movement with the aesthetics of revolutionary activism and communism. They had another guy who kind of infiltrated the Jesus freaks, and this was a guy named Tony Alamo. Uh, and Tony Alamo was a Beatles marketing executive. He worked for a record company in, in California. And um, I guess the story is that one day he was in a meeting with other record execs. He was just this marketing guy who like marketed albums. And he walked downstairs and he had some kind of religious experience. God spoke to him. So he quit selling Beatles records and he became, he started building a hippie church, right? And he became another, another group that again, looked left-wing, they had all the hippie aesthetics, but if you really got to know them, very anti-communist, very right-wing, very tied in with the Republicans, etc. So that was the beginning, where the, the development of these kind of religious counter-gangs that would recruit hippies, recruit hippies to be anti-communist, right? To be right-wingers, right? They would use the hippie aesthetics, they would use the messaging over for a peace movement, you know, etc., but they were actually right-wing. Um, so then, right, as the 70s went on, the 1970s went on, there was a fight in the ruling class. And I'm, I mean, I've done a lot of research about this. The, the Carter administration was very much Eastern establishment, synthetic left. And then you had the military industrial complex that was with Reagan. Long story short, the military industrial complex was really tired of, you know, of Carter's policies, the no growth, all of that. So around 1978, you saw mainstream media in the United States and the military, all of these, all of the areas of the establishment in the United States that are more or less right-wing started really giving attention to people like Reverend Jerry Falwell, right? Reverend Jerry Falwell. Have you ever heard that name? This guy was a pastor, uh, and he started the moral majority, kind of an, an homage to Richard Nixon's silent majority. And the idea is the majority of Americans, deep down, they are against drugs and sex and they want to follow the bible and and they're being ignored mainstream media is pushing drugs and sex and hippies and all of that and the moral majority and so suddenly reverend jerry falwell is going around and he's kind of building support for the republican party among among like you know areas of the country where people are disgusted with hippieism right you had the beginning of the war on drugs because the drug and this is interesting so the drug um the drug movement, right? I mean, the drug movement was CIA. It was, you know, it was the, the, uh, you know, the MK Ultra. It was the CIA that pushed LSD everywhere. It was the CIA that pushed marijuana 
in the 60s. I mean, it was really the CIA that, quote unquote, turned on America. A lot of people will look into that and, and tell you about that. If it hadn't been for Project MKUltra, there hadn't, wouldn't have been mass use of it. But, but because the culture changed, right? And, and you know, there'd always been drugs, right? And, you know, to be a heroin addict, you know, in the United States, or there was, you know, it was, to be a drug user was considered not a good thing. Right. I mean, a lot of Americans throughout history didn't even believe in drinking. You know, we had prohibition. A lot of a lot of American folks didn't believe alcohol was a good thing. A lot of places you still can't buy beer on Sunday, et cetera. But, you know, there was especially Roman Catholics as they came into the United States. Roman Catholics were okay with drinking alcohol. Protestants, some were, some weren't. But most fanatical Protestants, they had this attitude. It was more cultural than religious. They had this attitude that one should not drink alcohol. And. Catholic immigrants came into the United States and Catholics don't have a problem drinking. So you had drinking in urban areas and that eventually led to, you know, prohibition, you know, was kind of the, the reaction to the wave of Catholic immigration. And then eventually Roosevelt came in and repealed prohibition. So drinking is, is part of it. And then starting, starting in the early sixties, you had the CIA was pushing drug culture. You had popular rock bands were promoting drugs uh, you know, the Beatles, you know, I mean, uh, Paul McCartney gave an interview about how he's done LSD and what it's like. And, you know, the media started pushing drug use as part of popular culture. Well, drugs, uh, you know, drugs are not fun things. Uh, well, I mean, they might be fun while you do them. I don't know. But, you know, the results were a lot of middle American families, their kid took LSD and had a problem. Uh, a lot of middle American families, their kid became a heroin addict. A lot of middle American families and heroin was all over in Vietnam too. The soldiers in Vietnam were shooting up heroin and there was kind of a heroin epidemic during the Vietnam War. So you had the heroin epidemic coming from Vietnam and there's actually, you know, the USA in Vietnam was involved with heroin gangs. That's a whole nother story. Uh, but so there was a lot of heroin coming into the United States from Vietnam. Uh, and at the same time, you had LSD and hallucinogens being pushed by the CIA. And suddenly, by the mid-70s, there was a big drug problem in America. A lot of people were addicted to drugs, and people didn't know what was going on, and it was terrifying. So a way to fight the Eastern establishment from the military-industrial complex and the police and the Pentagon was to push the scare, right? And they... They turned terrifying people of the drugs. You know, drugs are coming and they're going to kill you. And drugs are bad. So, you know, I mean, it's not like they had to, they were not lying about that. And a lot of middle American families were terrified uh, that their kids would be addicted to drugs. So you had, you had these religious like kind of counter gangs that had started in the early 70s. And then that kind of culminated in the rise of Jerry Falwell. And he's on there and he's like, the media is trying to turn your child into a drug addict and a homosexual and a prostitute. And I, we need Jesus to come along. And so they were like scaring people, right? With all of the negative things that came out of the 60s, right? Because, you know, when it gets down to it, a lot of the cultural hedonism, it's not, I'm not trying to tell you what's right and wrong. I'm just telling you that a lot of that stuff can have very negative effects. You know, if people do a lot of drugs, they can screw up their mind if it's hallucinogens or they can become an addict if it's, if it's heroin or cocaine, you know, uh, you know, people, if, if they engage in promiscuous sexual behaviors, you know, uh, sometimes they can get STDs. Sometimes they can get pregnant out of wedlock. Sometimes they can just get their heart broken. Right. Um, we already live in socialism. All right. You know, um, you know, so, you know, there's, there's negative results to all of this. Right. Um, and so, you know, and especially if you've had a culture where people don't do that, right. When, when people are, you know, very, very conservative and you suddenly open the doors and people are engaging in behaviors they never engaged in before, 
the blowback and the negative impact of these behaviors um, can be can be very widespread. And so in response to the change in the culture and people being more hedonistic and having more sex, people doing more drugs, all of a sudden there was a shift in the culture. Um, you know, there was a shift in the culture um, and and people were afraid of it. And so in response to kind of the negative effects of the cultural revolution of the 60s coming in, you had Jerry Falwell kind of moving up to prominence in U.S. politics as part of the Reagan coalition that overthrew the Eastern establishment, right? And that's the 1980 election. That was very much, Ronald Reagan was almost kind of a Trump. Now, he made a compromise with the neocons and he brought Bush in. But Reagan was kind of a Trump. I mean, he was kind of this right-wing demagogue who was on the outs, was more of a John Birch Society, far-right, kind of anti-communist kind of guy. And he was a right-wing anti-establishment guy who was in mainly with the defense, you know, the military-industrial complex. That was mainly was backing him. And he came in amid the, you know, Iran hostage crisis and all of this. And a big chunk of his po- coalition was Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell was the public face of it, who preached this kind of, Go back to the Bible, follow the Bible, you know, don't be gay, don't do drugs, you know, that kind of message. But then you had a cadre of people, you know, Tony Alamo and Reverend Sun Young Moon and people like that. You had this cadre of like fanatical groups, like counter gangs that have been cultivated to counter hippieism that were kind of a base of it. And you had what now call, we now call the religious right. And what made it different from religious groups that had existed in America before was they were stupid. I mean, and I, and I don't know how to put this any other way. Um, you know, a fundamental Baptist can tell you in great detail how their religion is very different, very, very different uh, than the religion of a Pentecostal. You know, uh, a Seventh-day Adventist can tell you in great detail how they're different from a Jehovah's Witness. Not these people. The modern religious right is very much about getting a spiritual high. It's very much about the music. It's about letting your emotions come out. It's not about theology. It's not about the history of a religion. They'll tell you, a lot of them will not even claim any heritage. You ask them, are you a Methodist? Are you a Baptist? I just read the Bible, man. I just read the Bible. I've had arguments with these people where they insist they're not Protestants or Catholics. They're just Christians. We're just Christians, man. No, you're not just Christians, okay? You're a Protestants and you believe in a particularly watered down, dumb, you know, you know, emotional form of Protestantism where it's just kind of, you know, they, you know, the lights and the loud music are playing and they put their hands in the air and they're like, Jesus, we love Jesus. Um, you know, and, and it's just this emotional, this emotional thing that they're doing. And it's, it's a lot of like what they did at rock concerts in the sixties, right? It's a lot of, it's a lot of just kind of cultivating the emotions, uh, that, that the mainstream media learned how to cultivate through the sixties cultural revolution. So it's, that was a way that religion in the United States could, kind of rebound was with the religious right. And so the modern religious right, it very much over the course of the 1970s, you first had the the counter gangs, the cults or whatever. Then you had, you know, the Reagan coalition and the rise of Jerry Falwell. And now you have non-denominational Christianity. Um, you know, in the town I grew up in, we had a non-denominational Christian church um, and it was very big, very large. And they had, you know, a gym where you could work out. They had a daycare program for kids and it was just a huge institution. Um, and you know, they had a rock band that played, you know, Christian hymns, uh, you know, rock and roll and they weren't Methodists and they weren't Baptists. They were just non-denominational. They just followed the Bible, man. And that is, that's non-denominational Christianity. 
And that was a big part of the neoconservative trend. Uh, it started with Reagan, and it really, Bush was the last hurrah. During the Bush years, they caused enough problems that they kind of um, fell, fell apart, I guess. Um, but, you know, and they're still around. I mean, you still got Mike Pence. Uh, you still got Mike Pompeo. You know, but they're nowhere near as powerful as they once were. The Obama years, you had the rise of the new atheist movement. And, and the Obama years, those folks took a pretty hard punch in the mouth. The internet has not been good to religious right, the religious right. Uh, you know, it used to be a lot of people were part of that in the 80s and the 90s when I was a kid. A lot of people were in the religious right just because, because their parents were, because they went to a religious right church growing up, because, you know, you know, at their school, they lived in a small town where everyone was that. Nowadays, it's not like that. Nowadays, you get out your phone and you can Google stuff. And there's still a lot of evangelical Christians, but it's a choice, right? You have to willfully choose. I want to believe this. I'm going to block out the other information. Didn't used to be that way. It used to be that there were a lot of people. You know, I remember when I was in school, I used to argue with people about evolution all the time. There was a girl at my school who told me there's not a single amount of proof of evolution. Not a single thing has ever been discovered to show proof of evolution. And I said, well, what about the fossil record and all that? She didn't even know about any of that because they didn't tell her about it at her church. So there's not, not a single amount of proof of evolution, right? And I had another girl at my school. She said to me, I remember this was a great conversation. She said, if evolution's real, Caleb, why are there monkeys now? And I said, what do you mean, why are there monkeys now? She's like, well, they didn't turn into people. And I said, wait, what? She's like, yeah, you know, the, you know, there's monkeys now and they're not turning into people. So evolution is the idea that monkeys just kind of turn into people. And these monkeys walking around now, you know, they have in zoos, they don't turn into people. Um, you know, well, she had no idea what evolution was, right? Well, nowadays she would have a phone and she would get it out and she would look it up, you know? Um, all right. Uh, but anyway, all right. Uh, mild bipartisan support for troops pulling out. Right. I can talk about that. Mild bipartisan support for pulling out of Afghanistan. So anyway, that was a long rant, but that's kind of where modern Christianity in the United States came from. It's a very long conversation, not a simple question, but I'm glad you gave me an opportunity to talk about something. So there you go. Long answer. Maoism is on the rise again. No, it's not. No, it's not. Maoism is on the rise again on the internet. Uh, but no, I mean, you know, um, well, let me say this, okay? Mao Zedong, the leader of the Chinese revolution, is going to be remembered as one of the greatest geniuses in human history. That's a guy who started China on the course from being one of the poorest countries in the world to becoming a superpower. I mean, Mao Zedong and his influence, it, because of what China has become as a result of the socialist revolution he led, Mao is everywhere, right? I mean, Mao, people are learning about Mao, people are reading about Mao. China is out there. They, they are reviving Mao and pushing Mao a lot harder than they did during the 80s and 90s. So Mao is out there. But what you can call Marxism, Mao never called himself a Maoist, okay? Now, let me just put, make this point. Mao called himself a, a Marxist-Leninist. And the, the form of Marxism-Leninism that he had was called Mao Zedong thought. It was his interpretation of Marxism-Leninism as applied to China. It was kind of like socialism with Chinese characteristics. It was Mao Zedong thought, like it was Mao's interpretation or application of Marxism-Leninism to China, right? Maoism, that's not a thing, right? In China, they don't believe in Maoism. They believe in Marxism-Leninism. That's their ideology. And then they have Mao Zedong thought, which is their interpretation. Then they have Deng Xiaoping theory, um, you know, et cetera, right? So Maoism, is very different than Mao Zedong thought. Mao Zedong thought is just Mao's interpretation of Marxism-Leninism, right? 
Maoism, that is a movement that started in the early 80s. And it was in the early 80s, there were a number of parties that thought China, after Mao died, after Deng Xiaoping came to power, they decided that China was no good. You know, China was not socialist anymore. And there was a grouping called the Revolutionary Internationalist Movement that had a meeting, and it was the Revolutionary Communist Party of the United States. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Uh, Revolutionary uh, Revolutionary Communist Party of the United States, the Shining Path, El Sendero Luminoso of, of, of Peru, uh, you know, some groups in India, some groups in Nepal. Not very many people, but it was some parties around the world, some big parties that had previously been aligned with China that, that formed an alliance. What's interesting is that generally around the world, when the Soviet Union and China were at each other's throats, uh, uh, thoughts on Red Republicans Caucus of DSA, I've never heard of that. Red Republicans DSA Caucus. But around the time that China you know, was you know, falling out with the Soviet Union, you had in various countries, you know, around the world, you generally had two big Maoist parties. I mean, you had a lot more than that, but you'd have two parties that were aligned with China. The first party would be kind of a mass party that was trying to build labor unions and was trying to, you know, become a mass communist party. But that party would would follow Chinese foreign policy. They were against the Soviet Union, but they were supporting China. Uh, they were supporting Chinese foreign policy against the Soviet Union. They would call the Soviet Union social imperialist. In the United States, that party was called the October League. Right. And it was a big party. Right. It was, you know, they uh, Harry, Harry Haywood was with them. Uh, the guy who wrote Black Bolshevik, he'd been an African-American leader of the Communist Party. He was with the October League. <sighs> that was that party. But then you usually had another party that didn't follow Chinese foreign policy that tended to focus on being anti-imperialist and against the United States, but also wasn't really trying to build a mass party. Instead, they were emphasizing people's war and revolution, etc. In the United States, that party was the Revolutionary Communist Party, the Babavakian Party. And in India, you had the Communist Party of India Marxist, and that was the China-aligned mass party that you know, was building labor unions, etc. And then you had the Naxalites, so the Communist Party of India Marxist-Leninist, and they were the they were the party that was aligned with China, that was, you know, that, that, that was aligned with China, but wasn't following Chinese foreign policy and was emphasizing they wanted to have rural people's war, go into the countryside, wage guerrilla warfare. So the revolutionary internationalist movement or the RIM, uh, what it was is it was the second type of party. It was the parties that never really followed Chinese foreign policy, had never really sought to build a mass base among the population, but they liked Mao because he had a gun. They liked Mao because he was the symbol of third world revolution. They were into people's war, guerrilla warfare. They were into the violence aspect of things. And that was the shining path of Peru. That was the revolutionary communist party of the United States. That was the, um, you know, the Naxalites of India. And that's, those were a separate current, right? And so in about 19, was it 1981, 1982, those groups, they had a meeting, like a secret meeting somewhere. And they published a document and they said, long live Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. They no longer believed in Mao Zedong thought. It was Maoism. And they condemned every socialist country. Cuba was no good. You know, uh, you know, you know, um, you know, Soviet Union was no good. North Korea was no good. Even China was no good. No, no, no. And, you know, this, Deng Xiaoping had overturned socialism and they were going to bring it back with guerrilla warfare and people's war and all of that. 
And that's what you call Maoism. And Maoism, you know, I, I call them ultra Maoists. I think that's a good way of describing them. It's a deviation from Marxism because they don't talk about economics. With them, it's all about, it's all about the state, right? It's not about the capitalist system. It's not about building a workers' movement. Oh, no, no, no. It's not about that. It's about the government is run by evil, corrupt people. When we take over the government, it's going to be good because we'll have the guns in our hands. When we come to power, I mean, it's just this big gun fantasy. That's all it is, right? And it's basically the government now is repressive and evil. In the West, it's imperialist. There's police brutality. Or in the developing world, it's, you know, it's oppressing peasants or whatever. But once, once we're in charge and we have the guns, everything will get better. That's their message. It's Bakuninism. It's Blanquism. It's not Marxism, right? Marxism is about class struggle and mobilizing different class forces in society and building mass movements. This is just, you know, it's they want to take over the government with guns. And once they're in charge, uh, they'll make things better because they have the guns and they have the correct political line. And there's this and then they, they the political line becomes religious, right? It's not a question of, you know, of figuring out tactics that work among the masses. It's not like scientific. No, no, no. It's, you know, it's the, the having the incorrect political line is like having no soul, right? The culmination of American Maoism was Bob Avakian told me to vote for Joe Biden. That's hilarious. I mean, all right, we'll do that. Bob Avakian endorsing Joe Biden. Avakian endorsing Biden. And, you know, it's, it's an ultra leftist current and it's, you know, I was attracted to it when I was a teenager. They were, they were, they seemed very revolutionary. They were aligned with the Soviet Union. Uh, they were aligned with China. Um, but in essence, it they don't have a deeper analysis. They don't build a, a mass movement among the people. They just kind of build ultra leftist groups. And in Peru, the Shining Path did a huge amount of damage to the revolutionary left of Peru. I mean, it hurt the communist movement very significantly. Um, and it's kind of an insult to Mao because Mao was a brilliant revolutionary, probably one of the br most brilliant and most effective political leaders in human history. And um, Mao was a genius. If you read his tactical writings and these people, they don't know any of that. All they know is like Mao had a gun and he overthrew the state and, and we're going to come to power. We're going to overthrow the state and imperialism. It's just this, it's this, wank i don't know and you know the groups that are come out of this current the shining path in peru a lot of communists in peru think they were cia i don't have any proof of that a lot of them think that um you know in india uh the the naxalites go around assassinating and murdering leaders of big communist parties in india you have these mass parties the communist party of india communist party of india marxist the socialist unity center of india they go around murdering the leaders of those parties for not being Maoists, right? I mean, they, they engage in sectarian violence. They only organize the peasantry. When India has the second largest industrial working class in the world, they ignore the industrial working class of India and they focus instead on organizing the peasantry because that's what Mao did in the 30s. And it's like they're like guerrilla warfare larp. And, you know, it's just, it's an ultra leftist current that mobilizes peasants, right? And in Peru, there were a lot of indigenous folks that were, you know, Peru was underdeveloped. They didn't have running water. They didn't have electricity. And the Shining Path apparently did some good organizing on behalf of those peasants and, and fighting for their rights. However, they were very bloodthirsty, a lot of beheadings, a lot of, you know, violence. And they were very hostile to the labor movement of Peru. In the cities in Peru, you have a lot of factories, a lot of workers. And instead of aligning with those people like Mao did in his united front, 
they assassinated and murdered those people. And that's why communists in Peru generally hate the Shining Path because Shining Path tried to kill them. And, you know, with those folks, violence is a really big part of it. You know, it's all about the gun. It's all about killing. And the Shining Path, a lot of the people in Peru didn't know they were communists. A lot of people in Peru thought the Shining Path was a religious cult. If someone came to your house and they said, hi, I'm, I'm with a group called the Shining Path. Would you think that they were communists? No, no. You'd think the Shining Path were some kind of, you know, religious cult or something. And they, they would, when they spray painted, they'd spray paint, long live Gonzalo. And it's like, who's Gonzalo, right? So if you don't know who Gonzalo is, I mean, it's like, and people just thought they were this religious group. Well, they weren't a religious group. They were a, they were a communist group, but it, it was this kind of vague, violent, utopian rhetoric that was so divorced from class struggle, nothing to do with labor unions, nothing to do with economics and capitalism. It was all just, you know, we're forming this army and, and we're going to take over and be in charge. And it alienated a lot of people and did a lot of damage to Peru and to the leftist revolutionary movement in Peru. They bombed the Chinese embassy. I believe they also bombed the Cuban embassy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, and, and it's not a good current. And uh, those folks are not rising. They're rising on the Internet. A lot of people that aren't really engaging in any real organizing and activism, but are just kind of on the Internet, like pretending to be revolutionary. They'll get into that stuff, but it doesn't hold up in practice. In practice, that stuff, even even like the, the RCP in the United States doesn't even act that way anymore. The RCP at this point, they organize liberal rallies. They, they endorse Joe Biden. So it, it, it's a deviation. I would call it ultra Maoism. It's a deviation. And um, there you go. Um, what is the CPI pledge based off of? The CPI pledge is based off of the World Democratic Youth Federation pledge. We replaced the word youth with people so that people of all ages can take it. But it's at, at, when the World Democratic Youth Federation was formed after World War II, uh, this global alliance of anti-imperialist and anti-fascist youth led by the Soviet Union, they had a pledge that all the young people take. That's the pledge of CPI. That's where it came from. All right. Um, the influence of Bernays on uh, propaganda and culture. Uh, Bernays was a relative of Sigmund Freud uh, who helped design advertising. Women smoking cigarettes. Uh, that was largely the work of Edward Bernays. Uh, he made sure that I think it was during the, was it the Thanksgiving Day Parade? Um, you know, he had a whole bunch of very good looking women smoke cigarettes. So they would be photographed in the newspapers. And the idea that women smoking is sexy, right? It used to be men smoked, but women didn't. And the cigarette companies were like, how can we find a way how can we find a way to get women to smoke as well? So they got out there the idea that, that smoking cigarettes was sexy for women, right? So women smoking is largely the work of Edward Bernays. Um, and it was like naughty. It was like a men's thing, but now women are doing it, right? And that he was very good at, at you know, and what that's about is you're sexually arousing people, right? When beautiful women are smoking cigarettes, you're, you're titillating people. People don't know they're sexually aroused. They just think, oh, that woman's smoking over there. And it's like you're titillating them. And so that gets them to want to buy the cigarette. You're, you're affecting people's subconscious, right? And that's what Bernays is all about. It's the Freudian thing about your subconscious. You're appealing to, um, and you add CPI to natural resources, I guess. I mean, you want to nationalize the water? Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I guess. I, I'm not sure what, what would nationalizing water look like. Um, I mean, a, a right to running water, you know, in your home, I think would be good, but yeah, I mean, I'm open to it. I mean, I'm curious to hear more about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was like the idea of make appealing to your subconscious desires to sell products. That's Bernays, right? And he was very much involved in us propaganda during the cold war. Ramiro Funes and I did a whole piece on unmasking imperialism about that. So there we go.
Length in office. I'm against term limits. You know, I don't think term limits are necessary. Uh, Roosevelt, you know, he was in office four times before he died. And uh, it would have been great if he could have stayed being president. You know, and the idea of having, you know, political leaders who can build up, you know, a relationship with the people and build a mass movement behind them. I think term limits are somewhat un- undemocratic because they're a way to make sure you don't have a populist leader like a Huey Long or a, um, you know, or, or a Roosevelt, right? Uh, or a Hugo Chavez. Term limits are kind of invented in order to prevent the rise of a, of a populist strongman leader. And I think populist strongman leader in histories have done really, really great things. Um, obviously, there's bad examples, but, but you know, uh, term limits are kind of invented in order to in order to prevent the rise of strong leadership that could create like a government of action. So I'm against term limits. Westboro Baptist Church. Westboro Baptist Church is a fringe group. Pet peeve of mine. All right. Baptists are like one of the biggest religions in the United States, right? It's just, it's, it's one of the main Christian denominations. It's a form of Protestantism, right? But when I came to New York, I met people who thought that all Baptists were Westboro Baptist Church. And I'm like, no, Westboro Baptist Church is a small church in Kansas. It's a small church in Kansas. I think it's got like 100 members. It was started by this guy, and they became infamous for protesting the funerals of gay people, which is a pretty disgusting thing to do. They would have signs that said, God hates fags. God hates fags. Um, they protested the funeral of Matthew Shepard, who was you know, a gay young man who was murdered in a hate crime in Colorado. Despicable group of people. Um, and then they've been doing that for a while. They weren't getting enough attention out of that. So then they started protesting uh, the funerals of soldiers who got killed in Iraq. Um, You know, again, real classy thing to do. Real classy. Would I ever consider running for president? Maybe. Maybe someday. Not at this time. I have no political aspirations at this time, but maybe in the future. Um, But, um, you know, they they did this. um, And, you know, it was... It was all about, you know, um, you know, just getting attention for themselves. They would have signs, thank God for IEDs. They're protesting the funerals of soldiers who died in Iraq. One of the weirdest, um, one of the weirdest things I ever saw is one time Fox News had them on. And, you know, I think it was Sean Hannity was arguing with one of their members. Um, and, uh, he was arguing with one of them and he said to them, uh, he said to them, um, uh, he said, um, you know, he, he was like saying, like, how dare you disrespect our troops? And every time she started to say that it was about the gay issue, which is their main thing, right? I mean, the, the Westboro Baptist Church, that's their whole thing. They're against homosexuals. That's about it. That's about it, right? They're against homosexuality. That's like their whole thing. Every time they started to mention that issue, he would cut them off. He wanted people to think they were anti-war activists or leftists or hippies or something. But no. The Westboro Baptist Church, and I believe the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on them because they passed a law you couldn't protest a funeral. It was like a law that you cannot protest within this many feet of a funeral. And so, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church took it all the way to the Supreme Court. They're just a fringe religious group from Kansas, um, you know. Uh, and uh, I believe the Reverend Fred Phelps, who was their founder, uh, he eventually died. Um, he died, but before he died, they kicked him out. They expelled him from the church because he did something that they didn't even agree with. Um, so it's just, it's a fringe religious group in Kansas that got a lot of attention for themselves by protesting the funerals of gay people, uh, which was very offensive and very nasty. And then they protested the funerals of troops and 
Yeah, not a good group of people. Pretty disgusting. Um, we already live in socialism. Yeah, I know Haas is saying that, and he's got this hyper-intellectual reason for that, but um, I am disagreeing with that. I mean, I, I consider socialism to be something that comes out of the dictatorship of the proletariat. I consider socialism to be anti-capitalist popular power, and, you know, you want to, you know, I don't know. Haas does his own thing. I'm not Haas. You know, go talk about that with Haas. I don't think we live in socialism. I think we live in capitalism at a dead end. All right. Um, uh, mild bipartisan support for pulling out of Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, basically a strategic calculation was made uh, that, uh, that, you know, why don't we let, um, why don't we let, um, let Afghanistan be Russia, China, and Iran's problem? Right, and let all the problems the USA has fomented in Afghanistan now be the cost to Iran and Russia and China. Um, and they pulled; they made a point of pulling out in the most chaotic way, in order to cause so much confusion. And now, you know, there's already like a proxy war with the Taliban backing a group in Pakistan. It's fighting against the Pakistani government because China, China and Pakistan are are closed. They got the China Pakistan Economic Corridor. You got the Taliban and their armed group in Pakistan that's fighting the Pakistani government. And this is, I mean, we're seeing this. This is a geopolitical maneuver. The USA occupied Afghanistan for 20 years, and the whole time they were there, things didn't get better. And it got worse, and the drug gangs expanded, and terrorist groups expanded, and poppy fields expanded, and that's what I don't get. All these people are like, oh, we can't pull out, we're a bit, you know, no, no, you've been there 20 years. 20 years is not a short amount of time, all right? 20 years is a pretty long time, and if the USA was going to make things better in Afghanistan, 20 years, they had 20 years to do it, so... It's annoys me when people are like, oh, we got to stay there. It's like, really? Because things didn't get better the whole time you were there. I don't know about the Red Republicans caucus of DSA. I mean, it may, I, I su suspect that over the course of the next couple decades, the Republican Party is going to evolve into a mass, into a party, a kind of catch-all opposition party of populists, some on the right, some on the left. I think that's what's going to happen. Democrats are going to be the party of the establishment, the party of the mainstream. The neocons are already in the Democrats for the most part. The Bernie people are being told they're not welcome. And pretty soon Republicans will be this kind of catch-all anti-establishment party while, uh, while Democrats will be the mainstream party. That's what I think we're headed toward um, as politics realign in the United States. Um, Bob Avakian endorsing Joe Biden. I mean, the RCP, ultra-leftist group, but the main thing they do is they stage manage, you know, when whenever a Republican is in office, they did this with Nixon uh, in the 70s. When Nixon was in office, they had a campaign, the Workers Committee to throw the bum out. And it was this anti-Nixon campaign to get rid of Nixon. It was hilarious because China was supporting Nixon. And that was when Mao was still alive. And they should have been, if they were following China, they would have been supporting Nixon because Nixon was friendly to China. But they didn't, right? They weren't following China. They were following whatever they wanted to do. They were following the movement man or whatever. So they were had the workers. They wanted to sound working class and communist. They had the workers committee to throw the bum out. Workers committee to throw the bum out, to get rid of Nixon. And it was basically they were calling for a military coup against Nixon. I heard a story from somebody who was around at that time. And they said that the RCP would get up there and they would say, we want Nixon to disappear. We don't care if his helicopter crashes. We don't care if he gets lost on the way to the John, but we want Nixon to disappear. They're basically dog whistling the CIA, like go, go remove Nixon. I mean, it's like of all the things for a communist group to be doing at that point, it was weird. People were like, why is the RCP basically calling for a military coup against Nixon? 
it was weird, right? It was weird, right? A lot of the groups wanted to oust Nixon, Angela Davis, the CPUSA, they were against Nixon. You know, the whole like quote unquote left was against Nixon. But the RCP, they were like calling for the military to remove Nixon in kind of a weird way. Uh, you know, like, you know, maybe his helicopter could conveniently crash, guys. You know, it was it was a little, little bizarre, right? You know, maybe he'll just get lost on the way to the John. You know, I mean, it was the way they were organizing to remove Nixon was very bizarre. But anyway, they were for ousting Nixon. Nixon's a fascist, blah, blah, blah. So then in the 80s, uh, they argued that Reagan was a fascist. Um, and they promoted, there was a movie called Swing Kids. I don't know if you've seen it. It's an 80s movie about the Nazis coming to power. And it makes it sound like the Republicans are Nazis. It's like creeping fascism. One day they do this. Next day they do this. Not his, not historically accurate. It makes the kids in, in Ger- Nazi Germany that are into swing albums sound like hippies that are into rock and roll, which that's not what it was. It's historically inaccurate, but it's a movie from the 80s called Swing Kids. You watch it. It's all about how like the Nazis are coming in and persecuting these kids who like jazz. And so they're all going to be martyrs to fight against the evil Nazi state and they're going to stop the Holocaust. And it's a, it's, it's kind of this edgy liberal fantasy, liberal counterculture fantasy. The RCP pushed that kind of thinking. Right. Um, and they argued also that if Reagan didn't, you know, if Reagan was not defeated, uh, that there would be nuclear war in 1987, the year I was born, the RCP came out with a propaganda, like recruiting film, which you can watch. It's all on YouTube now called they say they will. And it was all about how, like, if there was a, there's going to be a nuclear war and the only way to stop nuclear war is with Maoist revolution. Right. And, and it was, um, yeah. Um, I, I can't get into that. Um, but, um, you know, but anyway, you know, it was like Maoist revolution or something like that. And, um, anyhow, that was the RCP, right? So Reagan was a fascist. When I was around the RCP, uh, I was around them when I was like first year of college, when I was a high school kid, I was paying a lot of attention to them. And they had this campaign, you know, the world can't wait, drive out the Bush regime. And they bought an ad in the New York Times. They got a bunch of liberal intellectuals to sign it. Um, you know, you know, um, you know, and uh, they got a, a lot of intellectuals to sign it. And that's their thing is that they, wherever the Republican president is, they say it's fascism. And they think this is, they think that they're being the CPUSA of the 1930s. They think they're building a popular front against fascism and it's their way of doing it. Now, never before has the RCP gone as far as actually, um, never has the RCP gone as far as actually, um, endorsing and calling for people to vote for Democrats. The RCP would generally boycott voting. That was their position. They think voting is, you know, helping the establishment, blah, blah, blah. So the fact that they went as far as saying to vote against Trump, that's kind of a sign of desperation on their part. Um, But they're getting smaller too. I mean, they used to be a lot bigger. Um, If you look at any of their videos on the internet, it's the same five, six people. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people that aren't in videos on the internet, but it's it's not what it once was. A lot of their bookstores have closed down. Um, You know, uh, the history of the RCP, there's a very good book called Heavy Radicals, The FBI's War on America's Maoists. It's very good. It gets into the history of the RCP over the course of the 70s how they evolved and all of that. Um, all right, folks. Well, it's been fun. It was an interesting stream and I think we're going to end here. So thank you everybody and have a good night. You upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism 
and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today.